This week on Invasion of the Podcast, the year Carpenter continues on with 1987's Prince of Darkness. After another big studio office box office failure, uh, will it return to horror, lower budgets, and total control get Carpenter back on track? Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm a reasonable guy, but I've just experienced some very unreasonable things. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. It's the invasion of the podcast. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. Okay. Show me. I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. The Year of Carpenter. Why don't we just wait here for a little while, see what happens. And welcome to Invasion the Podcast, where we try to take over the world one listener at a time. My name is Paul Pigeon Crucifix Stedman, and somewhere over in the distance is Steve Mouth Trumpet King. Hi, Steve. <laughs> don't mind me guys i'm just trying to get the worms off my windows yeah they just it's weird how they're falling in like reverse and then we're joined again uh like last week by the l that's not how to ride a bicycle goro you will not be saved by the holy ghost you will not be saved by the god plutonium in fact you will not be saved how's that we good 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 all right okay good yeah, and that you, over top, I, I I can never tell. But if you could just keep uh, saying I, I live over and over again, and then we'll just slowly read it, <laughs> um, and then just be like, "What's going on here?" And then it's like, "Wait, they're taping more things." Oh, that wasn't what was. Yeah, let me just keep staring at the screen. I oh. was going to try to pull off the line of it's like I have something to tell you. I'm not going to like it, but I can, I don't know how to do the warble in the voice. Like, I got something to tell you, but you're not going to like it. And see, it doesn't work quite so well. Yeah. Well, if you just wanted to like like stuff your person full of insects and try that, um, you that, presume I'm not already stuffed full of insects right I now, mean, sir. You know, you are a well exercised individual. You might be full of like a cricket protein. I don't know that. So um, I haven't yet dived into <laughs> cricket protein, but I'm not adverse to it. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean the, the way the world's turning, that might be, that might just be our last food source. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. There you uh, go. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that's that we're talking carpenter. We're talking Prince of darkness. Uh, yeah. And I think in a weird way, and I'm not going to like, not going to drag this out for four hours. <laughs> um, so this actually still, it's, it's an interesting dovetail from last week's discussion about Uzumaki mm-hmm. in, in a couple of different ways. And we'll, we'll, we'll get there when we get there, but I got some questions for you guys because I saw some happenings over the weekend. So, Steve, I'll start with you first. You went to some type of carpentry show over the weekend? Yes, yes. It was all about nails. Uh, Nine-inch ones, oddly enough. But, uh, yeah. You were at that show, huh? Yeah, yeah. I got to. Evidently, uh, everybody in Cleveland was at that show. It seems so. (laughs) A buddy of mine in Scotland posted up a clip from that show, and Steve will probably speak to this, a rather monumental happening that happened on stage. But uh, he was out of Scotland. I was just like, I think there's like 20 of my friends that were at that show. (laughs) (laughs) Paul's co-host, Terry from Strange Highways, was also at that show and was nice enough to come find me. Like, uh, my wife had posted that we were at the show. 
And uh, he was like, oh, where you at? So I posted like kind of our position. And uh, between uh, Knights or Ebb, who was the opening act and Ministry, Terry just like showed up. I was like, hey, so gave him a hug, uh, caught up a little bit. So um, it was good to see him. But yeah, there were tons of people like people that my wife had gone to college with that she hadn't seen in years. The only person that I didn't see at the show that I was supposed to see at the show was Ryan, uh, my partner on the Saturday Night Slasher. <laughs> he was supposed to, he was there. We bought his ticket, oh, okay. but we we went separately and we were never able to like link up. Well, and I saw uh, that, uh, you know, uh, Joe, uh, you know, original host of the show here was there as well. So like I just it was like I'm like everybody I know is there. So, yeah, it looks looks like it was a, a family reunion, uh, like in a lot of ways. Yeah, I um, I was unaware uh, that the lead singer of filter, um, Richard Patrick is, was in nine inch nails at one point. Yep. Um, and I knew that nine inch nails had a Cleveland background. I knew that filter, I think is from Bay actually, yeah. Yeah. um, Bay village. Yeah. Bay village. And, uh, I was kind of surprised. Uh, so let me take a step back. Uh, it was towards the end of the concert. Um, I hear the bass riff from nice shot and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm like, this is not, this is not nine inch nails. And then, the song kicks in and I'm like, that's not Trent singing. And like, it clicked in my head. I'm like, is, is filter here? Yep. And I didn't until like after the concert realize like what a moment, momentous, momentous <laughs> occasion it was, um, that, uh, they had former members of nine inch nails on stage, most notably, um, Richard Patrick from, from, um, filter. So, uh, it was a great concert. I, I have seen bands. How do I put this? I've seen bands where I'm like, oh, you know, they, they're they're good, but like you can tell that they're live. Seeing Nine Inch Nails, like Trent Reznor sounds just like he does on albums. Like mm. they're, I, I was really impressed with how good his voice sounded, and I don't know, maybe they're not doing like a super heavy, um, you know, touring rotation right now, so maybe he's saving his voice up a little bit in that regard because you sometimes see bands and it's, you know, night two hundred of you know four hundred over the span of a year and a half. And, uh, you know, that can wear on people, but like they were tight. Um, he was spot on on like everything. I don't think there was a, a sour note in my opinion in the entire show. It was a really good show and it was my first time seeing them. I was supposed to see them the year before, but they canceled that show because of, you know, COVID. And, um, I was so glad that we were able to, to get tickets to this, but ironically, uh, we, uh, we, when we went to go get tickets, uh, they released the tickets. We could only get lawn at the time. Um, and like it sold out like ridiculously quick. Well, those must've been bought up by bots because two days before the show, they let them, uh, sell tickets, people who wanted to sell their tickets and you could get tickets for as low as like, I think $11 mm-hmm. on StubHub at one point. Yeah. Um, well, and there, there's also certain uh, tickets, and I learned this from uh, my partner, Stephanie, who is a wizard at securing concert tickets. There are a certain amount of tickets that are actually held back by the venue itself that will get released uh, within a couple dates of it or a couple days of the actual show. Okay, yeah. I, I was, it was just funny because like a lot of people were posting on Facebook like two days before the show. They're like, oh my God, National tickets are like ridiculously cheap right now. And I'm like, what the hell? I thought it was sold out. So. Yeah, and I, I think that may have actually been why uh, a lot of the people in the uh, Cleveland area that I know or uh, <laughs> have uh, run into 
suddenly were like, hey, I'm going to Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> I, and I could just imagine how much of a nightmare it was leaving Blossom after the show. Oh, my God. So let me let me just tell you, we, we live an hour and a half now away from Blossom. Uh, when we, we got there, like they and I'm not kidding when I say this. They made us park, and we were there a solid hour at least before the, the opening ban. Mm-hmm. But they made us park, the, the people controlling parking at, at Blossom. I, I'm going to say maybe, I don't know, 50 feet or 100 feet away from the road. That's fair, yeah. <laughs> and, and we were we had a long walk to get up to the stage, which is fine. But in our head, we're like, oh, you know, this kind of sucks, but uh, maybe we'll... Maybe the reverse of it is we'll be able to get out of here quick. The reverse of it was not that we got out of there quick. No, no. We sat in the parking lot for over an hour, and we didn't get home till three in the morning. See, and oh, go ahead. No, I, I'm I am a little over a week away from being forty eight. I am mm-hmm. not built for getting in at three in the morning from a concert. Like, dude, I'm thirty seven, and I'm not built to be getting in at three a.m. Especially <laughs> if I got to go to work the next day. <laughs> I mean, that's why I, I, I was just at a Blossom show because, you know, Rob Zombie rolled in through here with uh, Mudvayne, Power Man 5000, and uh, Static X. And yeah, it was, I think it was like a, a Wednesday show, and I took the Thursday and Friday off because it was like, I'm not going to go to work after this. Why would I? <laughs> but I tell you, sir, the pro tip, and, you know, some of my friends make fun of me of this until, you know, they actually uh, catch a ride with me for these shows, but especially at Blossom, buy the parking pass. It's a little bit more expensive. It actually adds an additional 50 bucks to it. But the amount of headaches it saves you, basically being able to park right next to the gates and then being able essentially to get out with zero hassle because you bought the parking pass and you got the direct line out of the venue, it saves your life, brother. Yeah, and what's funny is is, uh, Kathy, who bought the tickets, um, she thought she bought the parking pass and didn't realize till that day that she didn't. Oh, no. And... Uh, I think she just initially intended to, and somehow it just slipped her mind, or I don't know what happened. But I was like, "Well, it's fine. We'll walk. I'm not. It's not that big of a deal, you know, because it is a hike. If yeah. you're if you're at the very furthest spot out to get to the stage, it's a it's a hike, especially after you know a three band show. You're like, ooh. Uh, yeah. And my, uh, uh, I don't know. I think I had four or five beers that I could have used to like, I don't know. Um, pay rent back when i was in college oh the 18 dollar uh, tall cans yeah <laughs> of bud light no less oh, of like, course i think i was drinking yingling at the other show and i'm still like 18 <laughs> bucks <laughs> but they're really big and you feel like you could you could bludgeon a small child with them so it doesn't feel like it's as much of a rip off it totally is but it doesn't feel yeah. like it <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah it was it was a great show and uh if we do ever go back uh to blossom um, it, it'll definitely, uh, it'll definitely be the parking pass that we buy first. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, so El Gore, I got to ask you, I don't, I don't know the context for this, but you posted an image <laughs> over the weekend that you said making friends. Yes. And I don't, I don't know how much you want to get into it. Like, you know, you know, your life is your own, but I saw you, uh, making friends with some very, um, outspoken people. So I was hoping yeah. to get a little context because it was amazing. 
Okay, so the context behind that photo, and to kind of paint the picture, the theater of the mind to the listeners of this audio podcast, the whole thing was, the picture uh, shows me in front of a large sign that uh, I'm trying to find exactly. Here it is. Jesus saves from hell. And just behind, you can see my uh, smiling face, and you can see a very condescending pointing hand from that. (laughs) The context behind that particular photo is that over the weekend... Uh, Kent, Ohio, which is the spiritual home of Talk Without Rhythm, it's, uh, they had their Oktoberfest. So we went, Stephanie and I went down there, we met up with some friends, and uh, we drank a prodigious amount of beer, because that's what you do at an Oktoberfest festival. And it just so happened that at that particular street festival, a bunch of, well, I'll be nice, I'll, I'll refer to them as God-botherers, showed up with gigantic signs foretelling our doom and gloom, and basically saying how we're all going to hell because we are imbibing of the devil's alcohol. Um, yes, and they were doing that right next to where I was sitting. So I felt the need to engage them in a spirited theological conversation. <laughs> I, oh, I would, I, to be a fly on the wall for that would have been amazing. Well, one of the more interesting ones is there's there's a particular passage uh, from the Bible that's because I'm 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 not what you would call a believer. <laughs> Imagine that. However, there are certain uh, passages of the Bible I try to commit to memory in order to um, basically counter some of these well the same individuals. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my particular favorites is a passage from the book of Proverbs, wherein, if you're not familiar with the whole thing with Proverbs, it's basically good advice. Let's just call it that. Paul, I'm, I'm, I'm certain you're very, very familiar with the book of Proverbs based upon your background. Yeah, I am. It's been, it's, it's been a while, but yeah, <laughs> it's, it's the fortune cookies of the Bible. That's, that's what it is. It's the, the fortune cookie portion of the Bible. There you go. And in the book of Proverbs, there's this king named Lemuel and his wife is, or sorry, his mother is giving him good advice and saying, hey, king shouldn't drink. But there's a particular passage in Proverbs called uh, Proverbs 31, 6, where it says, give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Yeah, there you Which go. is my favorite passage from the Bible because it's basically saying if you're a king and essentially responsible for a lot of other people, don't drink. You need to be of clear mind. However, if you're dying or if you're just really poor and you need to forget your troubles for a while, drink. It's basically the 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 opening words of of the song from Cheers put into biblical form. And so they like were they like well. You know, we like the Bible except for the parts that we don't agree with. Is that what? Well, the, the, one gentleman that I was engaged with in conversation who also had a very prodigious beard, and I think that's what caused an additional level of bonding twixt the two two of us. Uh, he was mostly talking about the Lemuel side of things, but he wasn't buying the the second thing. He was focusing on the perishing line, basically saying it's okay to drink if you're about to die, and it ended up being a thing. Okay. Did you just say? Did you just like do that whole thing of like you just kind of like lifted your arms and waved around like reality? And be like, not so much. Oh, okay. Just be like, well, why can't I drink right now? Look at like, (laughs) you know, have, have you seen the news? You know, no, um, that's true. I, uh, my basic counter was I am no King and I am not necessarily rich. Therefore I shall drink and forget my poverty. Thank you very much. Good sir. (laughs) (laughs) But what made it even better is that I was wearing one of my, uh, very particular regional humor shirts, uh, that is best, only best understood by those who live in Ohio. It is my hell is real shirt. (laughs) Yes. Whilst I was involved in conversation with these gentlemen. So it was a good time. Well, they couldn't disagree with the statement on your shirt. 
You know, they like, really couldn't. And I think that, I was delivering mixed message, mixed messages because I had the hell is real shirt. But I also had a coat that uh, had a Baphomet pin on it. So I, I think I couldn't tell if they were <laughs> what they thought of me. It's just, it's almost like, you know, like you're, you're pro hell in the sense of like, you know, like you're a sports fan. You're like, well, I got a pit of my favorite player and it That's is real. True. And let me talk to you about it. You know, like <laughs> at a certain point, I will have to start proselytizing uh, counter them. But I'll see if I can get some literature from the uh, satanic temple over in Massachusetts and then I can uh, counter protest against these guys. That or just do what you're doing. Just use like the knowledge that you have and put that on a sign from the same book that they're holding sacred that was put together by a bunch of dudes, you know, like was it a couple thousand years ago. Like, it's the- Yeah. The absolute best yeah. part, though, is there was a college kid, at least I assumed he was, because he looked young and he was wearing some sort of Greek life hoodie. But he actually managed to get this, the crowd, all of them pretty much uh, joining in, in a very wrestling-based ch- uh, chant of shut the F up. Nice. Nice. Clap, 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 clap. So I appreciated that as a wrestling fan. Yeah, and I'm sure that the people that wanted to be oppressed felt, you know, they probably got, uh, you know, oppression boners that they had to hide from God. Um, you know, they you know. really do like that. I mean, at the end of the day, they kind of want to feel like martyrs. So I guess oh, no, that's, the best that's, we could do is accommodate That's them. the whole point, right? Like, you know, like not, not even getting to the whole point of like, if you want to talk about Jesus as being a person, he went to like, you know, uh, the, like the tax collectors and the prostitutes and, and you know, and broke bread with them. Meaning he hung out and was just a dude, you know, versus going in and yelling at him. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think is the more effective way to, to reach out to people to show that you care or just yell at them and tell that they're wrong? I mean, you know, go to any fandom right now. See how well that goes, too. But, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, I'm no biblical scholar. I've read the book once. I didn't particularly care for it. But I seem to only remember Jesus yelling at one group of people, and that was money lenders at the church. Right. Yeah, that, that pretty much. I think that's it. Yeah. Uh, pretty laid back guy. But there was probably times where he got in some uh, very um, aggressive arguments about carpentry costs growing up because, I mean, you know, I'm true. sure. I'm I'm sure people are trying to, you know, <laughs> shortchange them for materials and goods. I'm, I'm just, at a certain point, you know, when he's, you know, he's n- nailing or joining a, a two pieces of wood and nailing in hits his thumb. He's probably like, holy me. Yeah. Me? Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Why does thou forsake me? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, that's true. so I, I like that you guys had a weekend that was like you, you, you know, engaged with that. And then Steve went to a show that also had biblical ties. So look at that. That's you guys. True. Very, very religious weekend. I appreciate that. That's awesome. And, you know, abundantly so. Yeah. So that, that's the only thing I'll speak to that I, I got into over the weekend was neither one of those things. Uh, but I um, decided I've been trying to do better about like getting to media that's been on my like, you know, shame list. Like I've been trying to engage more as opposed to like, you know, like we do stuff for the podcast and that's all the good, but there's times where it's like, but what do I want to watch? Like I know Elgora, you're you're much better about engaging with like all these other things all the time. But for me, it's like I kind of have like a brain space sometimes where, you know, I just kind of dip into playing Overwatch and then like weekends gone, you know, and I get angry sure. about life, you know, you know, it's just it's it's just one of those things. Um, but I started um, like I don't want to say rewatching because I actually had never finished the series, but I started uh, started the Venture Brothers over oh, again. I, I've started that series like five times and never finished it. Yeah, and I, I enjoy the heck out of it. Oh, it's but- so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> And so I got, I'm I'm halfway through season two. I know that there's like six seasons and I I guess it ended on a cliffhanger, but supposedly they're going to be making like a, like a movie that's going to be like on like adult swim to finish the series off. But now with, you know, uh, discovery 
kind of tapping oh, every yeah. bit on the shoulder. Who knows where that's going to go? But I yeah. figured I'm going to enjoy the ride all the way through because it just it's so whip smart. Even going back and seeing that the original was that the original season was 2002. You're like, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, and it's like you're like, oh my gosh. And then like, there's things now. I've been watching with my headphones on. There's audio cues. These guys were so ahead of their time in terms of some of their jokes, like uh, Dr. Orpheus, which he's my favorite Dr. Strange ever. But every time <laughs> there's this times where he's like speaking with this bravado and you hear this like very like music behind him. Like there's a bit where he walks in uh, because he's like watching the, the venture brothers that night. And he's like, and I've brought you pizza rolls. And you're Duh. it's like, it's like, <laughs> I don't know. There, there's so many like little bits and pieces that were like, you know, these are things that we like, they're just, I don't know. They're ahead of their time. And and the way it's written very pulpy and it has that adventure vibe, but it also takes the piss out of it. Like I, you know, I'm glad I've gotten back to it and I'm, I'm going to make it a point to finish it. And with each episode being 22 minutes, you know, you can just tear through it. And especially since it's all there now to watch, yeah. I, I'm going to get through it. So yeah, like, and since I told myself, I'm like, I'm already in the season two, like I'm going to keep at it. Cause this it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And, and, and Steve, if you've not watched um, it or much of it, I can't recommend it enough. It's, it's, it's a hoot on a related note. So uh, yeah. oh, go ahead, Steve. No, no, I, I, you were going to actually give information. I was just going to say that uh, I, I'm, I'm one of those rare people in that. Uh, Cause everyone that has, has, I've known has that's watched venture brothers has loved it. And it wasn't that I hated it. It was just that, I was like, it's just okay. Like, it just didn't hit home with me. And I think I only watched the first season, if I remember correctly, because it kept getting pushed on me. And I was like, all right, I'm going to check this out. And it's easily probably 10 years ago that I watched it. So um, it may have just been something going on, you know, in my life at the time or whatever. But it just it, at that time, it, it was not for me. Um, I like how I, I have to, like, compensate for, like, not enjoying something. But <laughs> probably it's uh, fine. You know, um, but, it's, uh, it's the Star Wars fan in you, Steve. I'm kidding. Um, yeah. I would be curious to re- revisit it because there have been things that I haven't cared for initially and nothing's come to mind right off the top of my head that I, I generally found later and appreciated. But um, that's one of those ones that I was like, this is not as funny as you guys think it is. And I felt bad about it because, you know, everybody that I, I talked to was like, did you watch it? Did you watch it? And then you have to give them that opinion when they're clearly well, excited about I'm it. I'm not but, saying uh, I'm, I'm laughing a minute at it. I'm just saying that they're, the writing is so smart and I'm, I'm just enjoying it. And there are bits that I am like, you know, legitimately laughing at, but it isn't, this isn't like uh, the comparison. This is not the same thing. It's just like, there are episodes of Rick and Morty that I howl at, you know, that I enjoy sure. a great deal. Um, but I've not run into one of those yet with the venture brothers, but I'm enjoying the ride so much. And just like just the overall vibe and and the different actors, like like I, you know, I just recently changed my Facebook fi- picture to Brock Sampson, who is like just, that character is so compelling and, and interesting and weird, you know, like he's he's like this badass, but he also has like a sense of honor, like I don't know, and he's like, but he's also like a killing machine without remorse. I don't know how to like I. But yeah, I, I want to I want to get through it. And also, like the monarch is like a very interesting villain. Like he reminds me, and I think it's because the voice. It's just I want to see Jim Rash play him in a live action version of like if they ever. Like, I know they won't ever do a live action Venture Brothers, but I need the Dean from Community to play <laughs> the monarch. Like I would love oh, that, or Doctor Venture for that matter. Well, yeah, dual roles. Just why not? They're like they're almost yeah, like at they're, that point yeah. you kind of got to right. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's what I got into. Was I've been yeah. I'm sorry, you're saying. 
I was going to say, uh, what, what I do appreciate about the Venture Brothers, and it is kind of hit or miss, but I actually love the just depth of reference that they pull from, whether it's old pulp stories or cartoons or even just the musical stuff. I mean, and some of it comes out of completely nowhere. There was an episode where uh, Dr. Venture was stuck in a uh, sewer, and then all of a sudden he sees, like, this guy skittering around, and he turns on the light, and it's basically Keith Flint from The Prodigy who's recreating the music video of the Firestarter. <laughs> yes. And he's and he's calling in Brock. He's like, I'm with this guy who calls himself the Firestarter. Yeah. I'm stuck in here with a confessed arsonist. Help me, Brock. Yeah. And it can, there's no other point for it being there other than that particular niche reference. And I think that's where Venture Brothers excels. Not everybody's going to catch it, but I found that going back as I watch it as an older person, I can appreciate again, just how wide they cast their net of references. Yeah. I mean like they, they, they reference the $6 million man. They make it pretty obvious, but if you don't know, it's, you know, it's not, it, you don't have to know. Right. But if you do know, you're like, that's pretty funny. And it's like, uh, like race Bannon, like you, they literally show him, but then you see an older Johnny quest. That's just like stuck in an undersea like bubble and he's just like older now and like cracked out. And like, they don't never, they, they don't say his name directly, but you know, it's Johnny quest and he's had a hard life. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, that's I, yeah. So, um, I know I'm getting to something in season two where they're basically running into, uh, the older version of, um, the, you know, the Scooby-Doo gang. I haven't got oh, yes. an episode yet. I'd also like their takedown of the fantastic four. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. yeah, that was, that was pretty brilliant. So Though, yeah, yeah. we can't talk about adult swim, uh, based animation without me giving my obligatory plug to what I consider to be one of the best shows running right now. And arguably one of the best shows I think that that network has ever created. Have you find gentlemen, and this is appropriate because we've discussed a previous project from the creator of this show. Have either of you gentlemen watched the show primal from Gendy Tartakovsky? Um, I have not. I see it's available now on HBO Max. I need to get to it. Yes, you really need to. Steve, have you watched Primal? No, I haven't. Because I saw, I think you posted something like a week or two ago, I yep. feel like. And uh, I was like, oh, you know what? I haven't gotten around to that one. And I don't How many seasons is there? Is there two? Two seasons. Um, and I think there are just about 20 episodes between the two of them. It is, without a doubt, one of the best pieces of just pure animation that has ever been produced. And I say pure animation because it actually takes them, I think, maybe nine episodes before there's a line of dialogue. Wow. Yeah, because it is essentially the story of a Neanderthal and his Tyrannosaurus friend dealing with a, an incredibly savage pulp-inspired world. And because it is Gendy Tartakovsky, who, of course, uh, did uh, Star Wars Clone Wars, which we discussed previously, and also Samurai Jack, the amount of attention to detail and the kineticism of the carnage is just amazing. That Primal is one of those things that's like everybody should be watching Primal. It is such a good show. I would just say, uh, you know, uh, if you guys haven't seen the Tartakovsky uh, Star Wars Clone Wars, they were bite-sized Star Wars episodes. I think the first season of them is twenty short, or twenty-three minute shorts mm -hmm. that were kind of strung together as one story, and then I think the second is maybe five. Uh, I'm sorry, twelve five-minute uh, episodes, and so it hangs together a little bit better. But if you have not seen either of them, uh, I still think it's better than um, any of the Star Wars animation that we've gotten so far. 
Yep. Uh, I, I love that series dearly. Um, and what's interesting about it too is, is that, uh, you know, it was, it was supposed to bridge the gap. Like Lucas is not telling the stories as much as he's like, you guys just go do what you want. Um, you know, as far as like a story and I'll tell you if you get in the way of, you know, the upcoming third movie. And, uh, you know, those guys got to do stuff that they wanted to see in star Wars, which is impressive enough. But, um, if you really think about it, that's probably the most, and it's, it's no longer Canon, but it's to me, I still think of it as being like the definitive bridge between attack of the clones and revenge of the Sith. So, um, if you guys haven't seen that, that's me trying to hype it up. But if you guys haven't seen it, I'd highly recommend it. Um, the other thing is, is that he did a, I think it's a four issue miniseries of Luke Cage, oddly enough, I that I've been trying it. to track down and I keep forgetting about it. I, I huh. feel like it was in the last 10 years. He, I think he wrote it and drew it. Wow. Um, but Tartakovsky is just one of those guys who I just don't think gets enough credit uh, or maybe he gets enough credit. Maybe people do know him as much as I think as I, much more than I think they do, but um, I just I think that that guy's uh, a fantastic, uh, not only say artist or, or however you want to call him, like as a, he's a storyteller, like he's a master storyteller, I think. Okay. Um, and uh, he was supposed to do a Popeye movie, oddly enough, and it fell apart. I'm like, God, I want to see that Popeye movie. Yeah, I, I want to know what that was going to be. I saw a lot of the pre-production that kind of went into it. And while it was CG, and I do think that some of Tartakovsky's craft gets lost when it goes to CG. For example, he did the Hotel Transylvania films, which are cute, but they don't have the same kind of impact as his traditional drawn stuff. Um, but I still would, yes, definitely would have liked to see that. Yeah, I just, you know, seeing what he did with Star Wars, I'm like, oh, man, what? What can you do with Popeye? Let me see this. I'm yeah. just I'm surprised that more people aren't like, and, and maybe maybe he's getting to write his own path and do what he wants to do. But I'm kind of surprised that more people haven't sought him out and been like, "Hey, uh, come make us some money because you, your head's full of genius. Come there work with go. us." <laughs> so so. I, I will I will put this out as a, as a highest recommendation for anybody listening to this, and includes my two illustrious uh, fellow voices on here. If nothing else, just watch the first two episodes of Primal. And then if it catches you, which I think it might, please, please keep watching because it just keeps getting better. I mean, once I get done with my 18 seasons of the venture, I'm kidding. No, I should. Uh, you know. <laughs> I know. Here you are finally uh, knocking off a list of shame. No, and I keep throwing no. some more stuff on. No, you. no, 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 no. And that's that's the that's the fun part about this. Right. Is like there's all the, the list always grows. Right. And like that's something that I it's not that I've learned it from you, but I can it, the, you always make me appreciate that there's always more. You know, yes. and like, uh, and, and like, and like, and Steve and like, cause I know with the comic stuff and, and like other people, it's like, I, I appreciate, like, I'm not saying that people can't, and this is a bigger conversation and I know we'll get to Carpenter here in a, a minute, <clears throat> two hours. I'm kidding. But, um, <laughs> the whole thing is like, people have their fandoms and that's great, but it's like, what breaks my heart is whatever. Like, I mean, it, it, I get that life gets in the way and like, maybe you only have time for that, this one thing. And that's your, you know, you have a lot going on and you're just going to enjoy that one thing. I'm, I'm not going to take that away from you, but I also think that you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't look further because there's so much cool stuff out there, you know, that's like, and whether it may be for you, may not be for you, at least be open to it. You know, and I think that's where, 
I, the older I get, the more like I was thinking about this today. Like I, I don't think, I don't think I'll ever feel old if I find a new song I like, if that no. makes sense. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. yeah, it's, and it's just one of those things where it's like, you get that hit of dopamine and you're like, and you feel like that, that's it. You put that song on a loop for a little bit and you did like the world's great. I don't think I'll ever get old if I find a new thing I like, you know? So <laughs> that's why, maybe that's why I'm being, I'm being selfish because that's what it does for me. And I'm hoping other people would find that for them. Well, and it's the thing that, and I've been confronting this sort of mindset for quite uh, a fair bit of time, and it became very crystallized when there was an episode of South Park, where I think it was Stan, he were, uh, all of a sudden, everything that he liked turned to shit. Yeah, you're getting old. That's the name of the Yeah, the you're getting old thing. Yeah. And that sort of tendency that if one, uh, and basically the thesis from the South Park Raiders that when you reach a certain age, that you will stop enjoying things like you used to that everything will just seem terrible. And that the only way you can kind of go on is just to pretend that everything's okay. And I vehemently disagree with that. Yeah. I think that there's always something new to explore. I think there's always something new to discover, whether it be new stuff or whether it be just uncovering stuff from the decades that preceded you. I mean, we've existed in a world of entertainment that has gone on for hundreds plus years you can always find something new. And as much as people say that, you know, the world is terrible and the artistic landscape of particularly films coming out is, is shallow and, and not nearly as good. There has never been a year that has gone by that. I haven't found at least one film that I've been like, this is an amazing film. I would love to own this movie. And I returned to it with, with glee there's always something new out there. There's always something new to explore, even if it's just new to you. So anybody who thinks is there's, they've seen it all, they've done it all, and it's all just terrible from here, I don't think you're really trying there, Haas. Yeah, I think that you you get your kicks by holding a sign up at um at a, a you know college town, telling them yeah. that they're all wrong, because <laughs> uh, you've seen you've seen all the Kirk. Uh, <laughs> um, I was gonna say, um, what was it? Um you know, Kirk Cameron movies. And you're like, I'm good. Go. I've seen them all. I've seen fireproof. I know what's going on. <laughs> let, us, let us just say, I, I have a feeling that me and the people that were uh, going down their list of sins that will send you to hell. I think we were having way more fun than the people that were holding that sign. So I think we, we, we kind of uh, left it feeling a little bit more fulfilled. Right. Right. There you, I, are. Yeah, there you go. So, all right. So yeah, like I just, um, yeah, that, that, that's the weekend talk. That's what we do here. We have some weekend talk. Uh, the only other thing I just want to note is this is more like, I want to play like a sad sound. I don't have right now is that I mentioned overwatch. I've been playing that game for five years. It's going to change significantly and upgrade quote unquote to overwatch two as that. of like October 2nd or no, so the fourth, it shuts down the second goes to the fourth. The game as I know it will fundamentally change. So it's like, I don't like it. I'm, I'm, I have a hesitation because I'm worried about what's coming forward. So I've been playing it more this week because it's like I'm playing the game that was versus what the game will be. And it's like, you know what I mean? It's like, well, I mean, is it, is it, as much as the, the population's kind of died down a little bit because I think people are waiting for the, the new one. Uh, so who's left are just amazingly good and are, and they're absolutely terrible to play against. So it's been really bittersweet of like, I'll miss this game. You all need to die to fire while I'm playing it, you know? So, <laughs> well, I suppose if you, um, if you wait long enough, then it, then the original version of overwatch that you most enjoy oh, will come maybe. back as some sort of retro thing, yeah, kind of like what they do with that, uh, world of Warcraft where you can yeah. play like the original version of it. Right. Sure. We'll see. We'll see what they do. I know they just released, uh, wrath of the lich king classic um so arthas is back uh you know being the main bad guy and they and then also i saw that they're offering a shot a frost sword uh, exclusive from the blizzard shop that's like oh what was it um 
was it like $1,500 or something? It's like, how much is your Frostborn sword? Uh, um, not that much. I can tell you that. Cause <laughs> mine isn't an official, uh, it, it was a few hundred. Don't get me wrong. Like, cause it's a, it's a big honking sword, you know, like you've seen it. Um, but it was I know, like, yeah. I mean, it's been baptized in my own blood. <laughs> But it's like it's got I, some sharp edges on there for, man. for what it is. Yeah. Like, you know, like it's just um, you just watch out. You might get some Viserys diseases there. Don't don't do that. But uh, no, yeah, but that's it, all right. Yeah. If I'm uh, if nothing, uh, I don't think the power of Frostmourne will turn me into kind of, you know, a whiny pale emo guy. That's true. I mean, if, if anything, you'll become a death knight. And I think you'd be you'd be you'd be like, oh, I get to just be all dark and brooding on a throne and just like, you know, look badass with armor or sword. Fair trade. Uh, I'll be. So, a, I'll, I'll prefer to be referred to as a death metal knight. Death Thank metal you very knight. much. <laughs> Which uh, again, there is mu- much precedence with the intersection between death metal and uh, World of Warcraft. That, Thank fair. you, George Corpse Grinder Fisher, uh, who um, reps the Horde and is the lead singer of Hannibal Corpse. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't. I didn't know that, but you know, the Horde's wrong. So anyway. Oh yes, um, the yeah. uh, the lead singer of Cannibal Corpse is a gigantic World of Warcraft fan. He That's even fine. has like a gigantic statue that was handed out for people that have played it for so long that's awesome so yeah, yeah but the whole thing with the with the uh, wrath of lich king classic is that they've just launched it and everybody believes like the people that are playing it they, they believe that was the the peak like the pinnacle of the game so my concern is going forward in like the next two years as they release content which is what they're going to do like they did originally are people like going to be like okay we're good don't release another one like there's going to be that bit in time where it's like no no no, no. this is this is the past that we want do not bring cataclysm because we all got mad then you know, so, Fair yeah, so I'm worried about like, so when you mentioned overwatch classic coming back, maybe they'll do it. I don't know, but we'll see. Uh, but I just wanted to mention that was all. So it was venture brothers and overwatch. And I just stayed home because this October is going to be busy as all get out, which I, I, you have a much more busy, uh, October than I do. So I should, uh, not, not say hey, so. It's all relative brother. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, that's it. That's it for news talk and other things going on. Are you guys ready to talk about some Prince of darkness? Let's do it. All right. Um, so before we before we get to that, I'm going to steal something from uh, the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. We're going to play the trailer. Ooh. proximity has the same dream what is it a secret that can no longer be kept it started a month ago what started a change in the earth and the sky his power there's a weird locking mechanism looks like it can only be opened from the inside a life form is growing out of prebiotic fluid. It's not winding down into disorder. It's self-organizing. It's becoming something. What?
though people can't see that audio they, they can hear the audio but they can't see that trailer go go look it up that has a very the ending of that is very much like friday 13th part three the way that that, <laughs> that intro starts it's like like the mirror breaking and the title showing up. Like uh, I will say that was a very clever way to end that trailer for, for what we know of the movie. So well, I have to say when yeah. the audio dropped off, I thought there was an issue for a second. Yeah. And it was just me like, just sitting yeah. there. Going, it was just me going. <sighs> right. I, I yeah. assumed that there was that a was, problem. That was that was you were just sighing. No, we were just listening to live audio of Steve walking away from blossom. Um, he's like, <sighs> he's like, I'm, you know, I'm not 48 yet. I can do it. <laughs> no, I was just like, man, this is really weird that he stopped the audio cold just to start heavy breathing. What then, you, then you, just hear, you just hear nothing, and then I just light a cigarette and just take a heavy drag. The like, true you know. John Carpenter experience. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, 1987's uh, Prince of Darkness. Uh, we'll like um, you know we'll get to, to we'll get to cast here in a second. Um, and, and as as I try to do here, and of, of course I got to give thanks to El Goro because uh, you've already done your Carpenter run through on your show. Um, I did, and you had a couple um, uh, uh, books to use. And um, I saw today when you posted the picture, you're like, I'm doing research, and I'm like, yours has color photos, mine doesn't. Yes, um, I, I got the fancy version yeah. of Troy Howarth's Assault on the System, the Nonconformist Cinema of John Carpenter, which I think it was maybe $20 more to get the one with colored pictures. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. This one was still like the price was like reasonable than the other book that you got. I was like, I'm not paying the price of a Frostmourne for that book. Uh, so. The hilarious thing is that when I bought uh, John Carpenter, Prince of Darkness, I think I got it for all $15. So it's insane how fast the old movie books appreciate. Yeah. Right. So, so with that, like, so you already have the same reference that I do. So please, like I'm like, it's funny because like you have the fancier version. I treat this thing like a college textbook and highlight things like, so oh, totally. Yeah. Cause I'm like, I, I like, I don't know, like I, this is mine. And if I hand it off to somebody, they'll understand my thought process, <laughs> you know, like, so yeah. And I'm sure that Troy would have no problem with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, cause I mean, every, the, his writing, like also it like hit, like the guy's thought process and his collation and research is bar none. This book has been amazing. Uh, and it's also very approachable. And just like, I, like, I, like, I appreciate it a lot. Uh, maybe some of his, his opinions about this movie, I don't agree with, but that's not the point of this book, you know? Sure. Like, so I mean, yeah. on, honestly, and, and it's again, why I recommended this book. Um, I wish I had this book when I was going through these Carpenter films on my podcast, because it is just so much good information in that's there. That's right. You there got are, the book the, after. Are, yeah. You got yeah, this after. Yeah. You, yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. There are, there are occasional things where I think he made a few flubs. For example, he referred to, and I actually noticed this when I was reading the section on Prince of Darkness, he had said that the Alice Cooper song, Prince of Darkness, was on his al album titled, titled Prince of Darkness in 1989. Alice Cooper never released an album called Prince of Darkness in 1989. And in fact, uh, the, so the song Prince of Darkness was in his 1987 album, Raise Your Fist and Yell. But, uh, you know, mistakes are made. Yeah, which is good because I just Googled uh, like Prince of Darkness, Alice Cooper, and I found the song and I didn't even think the album title was different. Spoilers, yeah. that might be the song that ends the show. Uh, as so, it should be. Thank yeah, you very much. Because I thought John, about it. I thought about it. I'm like, how many so how many movies do you get where you actually get a theme song? You know, well, you got, uh, we have at least two from Alice Cooper. <laughs> that's that's true. I mean, yeah, we got <laughs> that, right. Because uh, I, I will say that maybe uh, his Friday Thirteenth song is a little bit more fun, but the, this one's good too. But I'm just thinking also with uh, Saul and Precinct Thirteen, because which I, as much as Carpenter didn't like that song, uh, you talk about things that you find for the first time this year that you love. 
Mm-hmm. That that just I adore that song. I love that oh, you can't like you can't fight the system, right? It's yeah, so good. I, I love that song. Oh, it's uh, so good. And again, it's one of those where it was an unofficial theme. So they basically just took the took his melody and they gave it to a guy. It's like, hey, put, throw some lyrics on there. But I love that song. Yeah, and then we also what was it last last month when we did um, Big Trouble in Little China? Of course, you couldn't not not have that song as well. Coop Deville, oh, yeah, right. So, so more w- horror movies, more more movies in general yeah. need theme song, right? I agree. Like, because um, it's just that's a callback, right? Like we all grew up in like the eighties in various degrees, right? But we all knew that like movies had songs, right? And you always would wait for, you know, like I don't know, like. Um, I remember the, the the what was it the first uh, Ninja Turtles movie had that song uh, was it uh, uh, was it T U R T L E power yeah right <laughs> <laughs> well th- and that was part of a thing that at some point I'm going to put together the definitive list of the rap extra songs mm-hmm. the songs that played during the credits that were always rap songs that came into like the late 80s early 90s because you have the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie you have the Adams Family uh, pretty sure there was one on Su- um, Super Mario Brothers. There were a lot of movies that basically had rap theme songs that came out in the late eighties, early nineties. And as, as much as I've not seen deep blue suit, I know L cool J has a song at the end of that too. Um, there yeah. you go. Yeah. What was it? He said something about his fin, like a shark head or is it, was it his head like a shark fin or something stupid in it? Yeah. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. 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 So, all right. Um, yes. So of course, like spoiler, that's, we're playing the, we're playing Alice Cooper because you, you have to play Alice Cooper at the end of this. So with that being said, sorry, go ahead, Steve. I think no, you're... my apologies. I, I uh, don't want to disrupt the flow of the episode, but, uh, I just want to say something really quick. Uh, before the show, actually it was earlier this morning. Um, there was some communication going on about the recording this evening and I had mentioned that, like, I, I was going to be light on research this week. Um, and just listening to you guys, I was like, there. I, I feel like I'm a listener right now. I'm like, I'm going to just sit back and listen now. Because I did none of the, the homework, if you will, other well, than Steve, visiting the Steve, movie. welcome. Welcome to Invasion of the Podcast. Um, you know, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, you, you watched the film, and I think that's going to be enough. I'm sure Paul and I will be able to add color to the things, but you yeah. still watch the film, and your views on the film are going to be equally as valid as ours. Yeah, all I wanted to do was provide was like a um, contextual timeline grounding. That's been my goal of this as we progress. So these forward. are the yeah. these are the types of nuggets that I'll be bringing this evening. So uh, I was watching it last night. My wife came in about halfway through, and she's like, "What is this?" I tell her it's Prince of Darkness. And uh, Jameson Parker is on the screen, and my wife's like, she's like, that guy looks familiar. I'm like, well, he looks like the guy from Simon and Simon, but I'm like, it's not him. And then today, I was looking at the IMDb. It's totally the guy from Simon and Simon. There you go. Uh, Which one was so, he? Yeah, those are the types of nuggets I'll be bringing to this episode. <laughs> So is this the point where we uh, lay down the cast? Well, I mean, um, I, well, we can. I just was, I was just trying to get into some of the ramp up to the like getting to where we did with this. And then if we, I mean, either way, whatever, we flip a coin. You're it's the guest. What do, do you want to do? Make a no, decision, yeah. brother. I don't know. Anyway, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna uh, keep uh, throwing an apple in the air and making trumpet noises and just wait for the best. All right, so. <laughs> Hey, yeah. <laughs> say what you want about that. There have been times when I've been alone in my office and I totally mouth trumpet just like oh, yeah. Peter Jason. But do you, do you just take an apple and bounce it against like your bicep and catch it? No, but I okay. do do it with a, with a water bottle. I tend to flip oh. my water oh, bottle. I thought you were going to say watermelon. I thought you were going to say watermelon. 
on because you work out. I'm like, you son of a bitch. All right. So I, anyway. I don't want to try to uh, flip a watermelon off of my bicep. That's a quick way to get hurt there. Yeah, brother. Okay. I don't know. I don't know how strong you are. All right. So, so um, where we left uh, big trouble, little China, uh, it, it didn't, it didn't perform well at the box office and the, the frustrations of getting it done. Like this, like Carpenter felt like he, you know, after the thing didn't succeed, he, you know, he still made good in the industry by making Christine and Starman, And those turned decent, like, you know, decent amounts of money, not big hits, but they showed he could work within the system. Big trouble, little China. He had a similar kind of like bad tasty's mouth with the way that like the thing turned out. So he's like, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I need to not work in the system like this. And he wasn't cut out for the bureaucratic red tape. That's the quote from the book. And beat the system. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And then I also noted this, I had this, I didn't highlight this, but he was considering working with Charles band for a bit. And I'm like, thank Christ that didn't happen. You know what? Charles band has occasionally made good films with other people. Let me consider Stuart Gordon did a lot of great films with Charles band. Yeah, that's fair. But it's like, in terms of like, you know, we're, we're going to talk about two movies with this one and the next one that I have like, you know, with the equivalent of a micro budget in a lot of ways, you know, how much less of a budget would he have had? Compared to that's these a good two. point. I don't know what the budgets that uh, Stuart Gordon was working when he did his Empire Pictures. I don't think that they were three million though. Let's look up Castle Freak. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was just gonna. I I was just gonna say too. You know, Charles Band of the 1980s was not Charles Band of you know the 2020s or the last 20, 30 years. However, you want to break it down. But like at that point, like he was very successful. I think he bought um, studio space in England. Like. It, it was not the he owned a castle in Italy. Well, no, we talked yeah. about that. Steve. Remember we talked about from beyond. He actually bought uh, the, um, Oh shit. What was the name? Uh, De Laurentiis is uh, like lot. Right. If we remember, he yeah. shot that in Italy. Um, so, I mean, you're, you're right about that, but you know, like, um, like I, I didn't turn, I didn't want to turn this into Charles, Charles band discussion. I just think that like, I think uh carpenter would have had even more restrictions put on him. Uh, even like, even probably creatively. And, I don't, well, I don't, know. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I just looked up, uh, so from beyond came out in 86. So that puts it about in line with uh, Prince of darkness, mm-hmm. which came out in 87. And that was, you know, uh, Charles Mann released through empire pictures that had a $4.5 million budget. Okay. Well, then so I, he I technically would have had more money working for Charles Mann. Okay. Well then look at me being wrong. So Steve, welcome to the show. You know, none of us here. know. <laughs> <laughs> This, we're just we're we're all discovering as we go. Yeah. Through so, um, so egg on my face there. All right. So a uh, green goo on my face there, or clear spit in my mouth. I don't know. What you want to call that? So anyway, uh, so there was um, a, a company called Alive Films that actually reached out to uh, Carpenter and Steve. You'll appreciate this. Um, well, I forgive me. I have not had a chance to listen to your episode of At the Devil's Ball where you talked about Shocker. I don't know how much you guys got into mm-hmm. um, like the the background of that film. But a live films decided that like, you know what, with these smaller budgets, with these known commodities, we can reach out and get these people that we know are good at genre stuff and automatically through distribution deals, it's going to make a profit. Like it's already baked in. So they reached out to Wes Craven as well. Right. So the first of the live films that Craven made was shocker didn't do so hot financially. And then, uh, he did people under the stairs after with them. So I thought that was an interesting connection. Cause you, you just talked about that film. So um, so yeah, so they reached out to Carpenter. They're basically like, we'll give you $3 million. You can do whatever you want. Just give us an outline and we'll approve the idea. And then he goes out and makes the movie and returns it to them. Like this is the, the exact opposite of what he's been dealing with. He had more control, less money. 
And he also was like, you know what? I would rather just do this. You know, like, you know, they, they, they didn't even prove scripts. He was just like, basically like, here's the idea. Trust me. And we'll, we'll go do it. Um, so for him, that has to be very liberating. Right. And it's also kind of a callback to his, his original days of like, we're just going to, you know, by hook and by crook, we're going to make a film. Uh, El Gore, I don't know if you like have anything else to add there. Cause I know I kind of skipped over a little bit about a live pictures. I don't know how much we need to get into that or not. Well, uh, live pictures is an interesting one. And one of the, one of the things that I find interesting about that is, uh, one of the key people that is involved in a live pictures is a gentleman by the name of Shep Gordon. Now, Shep Gordon had a long uh, running career. He was basically the guy that kind of knew everybody. And in fact, uh, Mike Myers of all people, uh, not Michael Myers, but Mike Myers, <laughs> He actually directed a documentary about Shep Gordon in 2013 called Supermensch, The Legend of Shep Gordon. Hmm. But and it's well worth watching because he was a very interesting individual. And he was kind of just, again, one of those guys that kind of knew everybody that sort of uh, moved between all of these different worlds. I mean, he worked with Alice Cooper. He had a, a foot in music. He would uh, transition into film. He was just the kind of guy that was friends with everybody and thus touched a lot of different fields of entertainment throughout his life. Well, that's not that dissimilar uh, versus the, one of the first people that Carpenter encountered when he was like after doing a solo precinct, th- well, actually doing a solo precinct 13. Like that was one of those guys that was kind of well positioned that kind of knew people to get the film out there. So um, I, not, not a COD because I know that comes along with Halloween, but I forget yeah. the gentleman's name with the solo precinct 13 that actually. Oh, helped. what is his name? Yeah. It's I in the book. Gordon, but that's not, yeah. that's not right. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's, it's Shimp Gordon. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, it's not Shimp Gordon. Fake <laughs> <Big Shemp. laughs> Shimp Gordon. That's who it is. No. Um, so, so yeah, so this puts Carpenter at an interesting position where, you know, they, they're reaching out to him to do genre and he's like, I haven't done horror since Christine. And, you know, and so it's like, you know, he's also, he's proven that he isn't like beholden to a specific type of genre. However, that's where his money's been made. And then at the same time he approached them, like when they approached him, he's like, sure. And he started reading a lot about quantum physics, which I'm not going to begin to explain because I don't understand any of it other than sometimes people leap in and out of people, according to a show I once saw. Um, but yeah, he was reading a lot about quantum physics and then, um, that's where the initial idea for Prince of Darkness came from. So, yeah, and yeah. I had, a, had an interesting thing about that because I was trying to – the dork that I am, I'm trying to figure out exactly what he was reading during that time period. And as an interesting piece of connection onto that, are you guys familiar with the uh, scientist Michio Kaku? Um, oh, I've, 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 is that the gentleman that is the, like one of the talking heads on all the science specials? Totally. <laughs> the guy with the, so, gray, the gray flowing hair, like, you know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, okay. So Michio Kaku, uh, these days, he's basically the guy that you get to be, if you can't get Neil deGrasse Tyson, you get Michio Kaku. And over the years, he's written a lot about, he's one of those guys kind of like Neil deGrasse Tyson that can take super complex um, quantum theories and basically dumb them down for the layman. Uh, I encounter myself amongst those laymen because I've read a few of his books. He has a tendency to kind of go into the woo-woo side of things, um, and it's made him somewhat of a controversial figure in uh the and these cor- uh, s- sort of realms but at the same time he does an excellent job of kind of explaining just how weird some of this science is whether it be uh string theory whether by uh unified field theory all of these fun little things what i find fascinating 
is the very first book that Michio Kaku ever released was in the early part of 1987, February of 1987. Now, Prince of Darkness came out in October of 1987, had a pretty pretty quick turnaround. And I don't know how much of a figure Michio Kaku was prior to the publication of his first book, Beyond Einstein, The Cosmic Quest for the Theory of the Universe. But I wonder if elements of Michio Kaku as a figure kind of filtered in into the depiction of the Victor Wong character. I mean, that would make sense, but at the same time, it might be, I mean, it sounds like Carpenter was like voraciously reading all this because he's interested in it. So I'm sure Sure. during the production process, he probably picked it up because it's a very, it's an oddly specific book for his oddly specific interest at that time. Right. (laughs) So, so that would make sense to me. Um, Certainly. yeah. So, uh, so th- th- that was that. And then also here, and this is where you could speak to this way more than I possibly can. Uh, cause I know he uh, collaborated with Nigel, um, uh, Neil on, Nigel uh, Neil, yes. on Halloween three. Um, and I know mm-hmm. that didn't work out so well between the both of them. Like they kind of butted heads cause Nigel Neil is a bit of a curmudgeon, but you know, Carpenter, <laughs> a thousand percent. Carpenter could be a little bit of a curmudgeon when he wants to, too. So whatever, uh, game recognizes game. Um, but the fact that he was such a fan still of the uh, Quatermass series, which I know I'm going to give the floor to you because um, I've still not seen any of the Quatermass uh, films. Okay. And you can you can bludgeon me with that, you know, <laughs> my list of shame. But yeah. well, and this is actually one of the major reasons that uh, when you initially announced that you were discussing going to be doing the year of Carpenter. And of course, there was a slew of people on your social media, myself amongst them, that were basically calling their shots. We want to do this one. We want to do this one. Uh, from the jump, I wanted to do Prince of Darkness because, in my opinion, that is the closest that John Carpenter has come towards the work of Nigel Neal. Now, I discovered Nigel Neal through John Carpenter, started off as a Carpenter fan, and then expanded out for this kind of stuff that he likes, and it turned me on to the work of Nigel Neal. Now, for the benefit of the people that may not be too terribly familiar with him, Nigel Neal was a – he was from the Isle of Man. And he did an extensive amount of work with BBC as well as some other major studios throughout the United Kingdom. Uh, Hammer Film in particular did various filmic adaptations of his work. Uh, You had mentioned the Quatermass films. He started off with the Quatermass experiment. And then from there it was – oh, what was it? (laughs) I forget. I think it was just Quatermass 2. And then the best film, in my opinion, of his, Quatermass and the Pit. Now, these actually started out as live television specials that then got turned into feature films. And he was incredibly prolific. And the thing that I appreciate most about Nigel Neal, and this permeates both the the collaborations he did with Carpenter in Halloween 3 Seasons of the Witch, as well as basically the Nigel Neal homage that is the Prince of Darkness. One of the things that Nigel Neal loved to explore was the notion that supernatural happenings have a basis in reality, or in particular have a basis in science. He was the master of essentially blending together the stuff that existed in the fantasy supernatural realm and giving it a science fiction-y sort of explanation. For example, in Quatermass in the Pit, One of the big conceits of that film is that it's essentially revealed that our imaginings of demonic of demonic figures are imaginings of even haunted places are the result of the fact that we are descendant from a Martian slave race and we are basically uh, experiencing 
past hallucinations uh, that uh, of a previous genocide that are manifesting in demonic figures. It sounds way too much complicated. It makes perfect sense if you watch Quatermass in the Pit. Uh, one of his other big films to other also explore this sort of th- uh, theory is the uh, film he did, The Stone Tape, which I believe was made for British television. In that, he tackles the notion of hauntings, suggesting that what we could, what we perceive as ghosts are essentially past events traumatic enough that they have somehow embedded themselves within a physical medium, in this case, stone. And that if the stone is is manipulated in a particular sort of way, it will essentially replay these traumatic events, thus uh, making us think that we are seeing ghostly happenings. So essentially, Nigel Neal is taking supernatural things, giving them a scientific explanation. And that sort of interplay between the these two different factors has been a source of fascination for me for a long, long time. I don't know why I find this particular pairing so appealing, but the idea that you can take the supernatural and give it a grounding in something approaching real science to me, it makes it it adds the, to the verisimilitude of it. It adds to the reality of it. And essentially what Carpenter is doing with Prince of Darkness is doing the exact same thing. He's taking the idea that let's let's start with a very Lovecraftian, in some cases, uh, Judeo-Christian conceit of cosmic evil. And then let's explore what that would exist if we could actually quantify it. If we could actually explore explore the nature of evil through the use of quantum physics and that at the at its heart is what prince of darkness is all about all right everybody thanks for coming to the ted talk no i'm kidding right, so <laughs> uh, no 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 I, I knew you would be able to speak to that with everything you're saying there uh, and and steve you can uh, jump in uh, i know you have a lot of nigel neal facts you want to give us right now um did, did any of that explanation <laughs> make any kind of sense <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it did. And actually, you know, I, I don't want to say that I have a dumbed down version of that same answer, but uh, I kind of do in the sense that uh, the thing that I like most about this film is its approach to try and not explain uh, whether you want to say theology, theology or the Bible or good and evil, what, however you want to break it down as being based in science. But I like this approach of taking uh, the concept of Satan actually walking the earth kind of thing and basing it in science. I like that. I think it one, and we'll talk about this once we get more into the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that this movie has, unlike any of his other films, there's a tension in a, um, a sense of dread throughout the entire thing. Oh, like, I don't, I don't think in any of his other movies, even I love Halloween, but even that movie has breathers, you know, this movie, I just feel uneasy watching the whole thing, and and I don't want to go back to last week in the sense of like we've we've had that discussion. Oh no, I think I think that talking yeah, about please please like there's there I think these two connect pretty well. That's why yeah, continue please. Yeah, I mean that whole book has a sense of dread throughout the entire thing. This does a very similar thing, um, but uh, the the dumbed down version of what you said is is uh, my take on it. In my opinion, is is that I don't understand the science but it adds to the story. Yeah. And I think that it, it, it pushes it in a way that uh, horror wasn't really going at this time. You know, there wasn't a lot of focus. I mean, this is the heyday of the slasher. So you're not seeing 
these types of films from a lot of different directors. We'll put it that way. Okay. Well, yeah. So uh, let me jump in here real quick. So that's correct. And I, and, and we'll get to that in a second, because this is a purposeful decision because of that. And then also when you, uh, I'll grow, when you mentioned this, you made me think of like Richard Matheson. Like you made me think Certainly, of like, yes. like, um, and, and, and in some ways and you, everybody could throw bricks at me as much as he overdoes it. Dean Koontz, where he always sets up like these, like seemingly like, you know, supernatural happenings. You're like, Oh, by the way, it's all this like, Oh shit. Someone just forgot to put the batteries in the right way. Like, Oh, okay. Okay. Great. Right. Anyway. So no, but it's like, um, like he, he always like for the most part will find a way out of a mystery. He'll set himself up or he'll have a sci-fi explanation or whatever. Um, like I, I as much as like people like strangers is an amazing story of his, right. I think there's some cool shit that he's done and pulled off and Matheson. Like I think of like, um, there's that twilight zone episode, uh, little girl lost. Where it mm-hmm. just happens to be like, oh, there's just a portal behind uh, this girl's uh, this bed, and she ended up in this mirror dimension, and we don't know what's going on, but we gotta go get her. Like, why? I don't know. It's just happening, you know. Like, well, just, and and yeah. even with Matheson, when he wrote the book Hell House, yes, which is yes. a distinctly supernatural thing, but he was approaching it from the idea that parapsychology was a legitimate science. And so there was a scientific process that one can do to engage with the supernatural, uh, positing that the supernatural is just another physical phenomena that we are we we can, through the scientific process, find a way to kind of explore. So, yes, Matheson is a great kind of connection to this sort of thing. And it's, again, why I enjoy uh, to reveal one of my own idiosyncrasies. I love horror films that basically have experts trying to figure stuff out. And that that could be stuff like in uh, Poltergeist, where they call in the parapsychologists and they set up all of their equipment and they're having these little conversations. I love that stuff. Um, the film The Entity, mm-hmm. while it's not a great film from and it can be somewhat disturbing, the final end of that, where they basically have all of these parapsychologists that are fully engaged with it and they have all of their equipment that stuff is kind of like weird catnip for me yeah basically because it kind of passed me back to the time when i was a kid and believe all of this stuff was true and all of this stuff could be proved and now i'm old and jaded and (laughs) i have to go to fantasy to kind of make me think about it's real it's also very ghostbusters right? that's true i was gonna say i I was gonna say it's like the amazon prime series that steve and i covered a couple years ago truth seekers that, yeah, um, but that, it, I mean, yeah. even going back to Ghostbusters, it was yeah. an attempt to apply science to the supernatural. And while Ghostbusters is a bit more on the fantasy side compared to what stuff Nigel Neal does, I think that that was really kind of the foundation of why I'm so drawn to this weird sort of intersection. Mm-hmm. Because to me, if you can prove ghosts exist empirically through the use of science – well, that makes them real, doesn't it? Which yes. makes them even more terrifying. <laughs> Which, I mean, we just mentioned From Beyond, right? That's another one that's like, kind of right? like, that's like, oh, you just got to get some tuning forks and then shit gets weird. And okay, great. The people get melty and kind of sexy. Bring it on, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, and, yeah, and as, as you were alluding to earlier, the idea that this is kind of presented as mature thinking man's horror, that this was very much the intention of John Carpenter. Yeah. So that's Steve to mention your point. Like he was kind of frustrated with like the slasher thing because he might've actually been like one of the main people to give birth to it. He was done with that. So he actually wanted to write, he wanted to make a horror movie for adults versus like teens and kids. So when you say that you're, you're right on the money, this was his intention to be like, you know what? I've already covered that territory. Let's let, let me do the thing that now interests me. 
And so like, and he's like, I've been reading a lot of science while I fly around my helicopter or whatever he's doing. I don't know. Um, you know, and so that's where that was coming from. So what I, what, let me, let me just throw a couple other things in here. I know I'm, so we've gotten to like the precursor here real quick, but so, um, he was okay with, well, here's a, here's a quote I like here. He's like, I finally figured out who I am as a filmmaker. At one time I thought I wanted to do big budget, major studio director. Now I realize I don't. There is no way I can't do it. I, I uh, hate authority too much. So like I, that's, that seems appropriate for him. Um, and then he also said that when he was given these lower budgets, entire time frames, he's like, well, I've already done it. Like through escape from New York, like I can do it. He knew what he was capable of. So that's, I think that also speaks to, he's like, I'm a professional. I have so much more experience now. I have a lot of people I can trust. I think that's also important. And then, um, I want to mention here too, uh, like he couldn't get Dean Cundy to be the cinematographer because Dean Cundy costs too much money now because he's successful. So he imagine brought in, that. Imagine that. So he brought in uh, Gary uh, Kibbe, who had worked as an operator for Cundy on Big Trouble in Little China. And you know what? Um, you know, I, I do have some nitpicks with this movie. If you would have told me Cundy would have photographed this, I would have believed you. It's still, it looks like a Carpenter film, which I, th- that's, that is, it's a weird backhanded compliment because I'm sure every cinematographer wants to like make their own mark, but the, the, like the, there, there's that still that rich darkness that you get, especially inside when we get to like the main chamber, like you, if you had told me Cundy would have actually been the guy behind the camera for this, I would have believed you. Well, and also in terms of just the composition, and that's one of the the interesting things about the relationship between cinematographers and directors, that yes, there is a tendency to want to kind of make your own mark on things, but at the same time, the role of the cinematographer is is essentially to realize the vision of the director. Yeah. And Carpenter has usually has a very distinct sort of visual language that he wants to operate under. And that is certainly present in this film, even though he switched cinematographers, the utilization of the kind of the widescreen, the widescreen frame and also the sedate quality of the shots. You know, this is a film that sort of takes its time. Rapid editing is not in the language of John Carpenter. Oh, yeah. But I mean, like even going back to like Christina Starman, which I think he uses, if I recall, like maybe again, I could go back and look. He used a different uh, director of photography, both of those. But you, you have a look, which is what we we're saying. That he like when his name is above the title, you know what to expect in terms of a visual language. So I think I think that's fair. And if you like, so like I'm saying that there's no drop off in quality of the cinematography, which I think is important. But he also had a number of people that actually he'd worked with before that he could trust that they somehow like they stretched a dollar till it screamed in terms of like production (laughs) design, some of the effects, whatever you can forgive it. Um, you know, but you know, in terms of like, you know, like how do you show like, like liquid shooting out of somebody's mouth, just do it on profile. It works, whatever. It um, does. It does work. Right. So also Steve, well, speak, also, yeah, sorry, go ahead, please. please I Steve. apologize. No, I'm cutting no, in. Oh, it's, um, yes, but, uh, stop, stop apologizing for cutting on your own show. Okay. No, no, no. I, just, <laughs> I, I don't want to break the flow of what you're saying, but, um, you know, one of the things that strikes me about this movie is, is that, uh, uh, it it uses it makes great use. Let me put it this way: of one location. Like, yeah, we changed locations. I don't know for fifteen minutes of this movie, and then everything you, after that. Fifteen minutes? You mean months. during the credits? I'm kidding. Continue. Yeah. Well, I, I, we we see the school. I think we see the conversation between um, uh, Wong and um, Loomis, and uh, I'm sorry, Balik <laughs> and 
Uh, hey, he's just the priest. Yeah, I just, I just yeah. like that you oh, all the names from all. Yeah, just from everybody. I love it. It's yeah. amazing. Please, I, I'm just gonna call everybody the you know the, the guy from Big Trouble in Little China when he talked to the guy from Halloween. Yeah, um, <laughs> Shin but, and also Loomis as they're talking to each other. Yes, yes. There's there's the scenes where um, Jameson Parker Parker is trying to get with Lisa Blount and then is then successful. But like after that, like the movie just kicks into like, we're here for the rest of the time. And I think that that one obviously is a budgetary constriction, but also I don't think it hurts this movie at all. I think it adds to the dread that's throughout the the entire film. Yeah. Oh, so, so much. So, I mean, one of the things that I love about this movie is there's a moment where, you know, you have Dennis Dunn, he's locked, he's locked in the closet. More on that later. Um, (laughs) And the other characters are, are, you know, on the other side of the wall. And then there is a moment where Victor Wong looks outside and he's like, oh, the sun's coming up. And it's, and in a traditional horror film, that would be, oh, we're all safe. You know, the sun is coming up. The night is over. The evil has gone aside. Except they look out the window and they realize it doesn't matter that the sun is up. They're still surrounded by these hordes of homeless people led by a very gaunt Alice Cooper that it are still keeping them trapped within this space. Much like Assault on Precinct mm-hmm. 13, it's the idea of isolation in the middle of civilization. That y- you are surrounded by people, yet you cannot escape. And I think that is a very particular kind of urban horror that John Carpenter was very, very smart to evoke in this film. Yeah, so that's I was going to speak to what you're saying, Steve, about how like he went against the grain of like he could have easily just kept making slashers and nobody would have batted an eye because that's where he 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 made his most you know his most successful film right like in, you know I know that there's other things aside in terms of how much he made off of it but Halloween was like you know very successful so he could have made more slashers right but with this I uh, per the book here it says in many ways the film plays like an anti 80s horror film which is exactly what you're saying. So I think, um, and I think I want to speak to that. We got like, so that to say all that, there's some other notes here. Uh, we'll get into like the aftermath of the film, but with, with that now, should we get to the cast and like the premise? I think we already kind of already gotten to a little bit. I know, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but you know, I, I wanted to get to like the groundwork of where this film was coming from. Cause I think that's, that's cause if like, if anybody, if people have been like following us on this journey, because that's the whole reason is like one, I know that it was a blind spot for you when you did your carpenter run through, uh, that like in terms well in terms of you wanted to discuss it all on your show and you did um and it's like i feel like this was a big blind spot for us and i feel like for me it isn't so much watching all the movies which is important i just want to understand the timeline of the director because i don't know if i could necessarily get down to the like the brass tacks of his stylistic changes or or all of this and this and this and this i just want to understand the, the outside pressures that made what made possible because I'll be honest coming into this, like if you would have had me put his movies in order, like chronologically before I started getting into this, I would probably have been all over the place. Um, sure. and, and also in terms of like, cause there's very distinct arcs to his filmmaking career and we're entering a new one now in terms mm-hmm. of what we're talking about. And I didn't, I, I wasn't aware of it. You know, so I think that's the, that's the journey part of this. I want to get into, and, and we've already established this, what we talked about. So, uh, so yeah, we, if we want to actually specifically mention the cast and the, the, the basic premise, I guess we've already talked about, uh, you know, like, Hey, what if a monster can was just really evil, you know? 
That's that's the <laughs> do the do. You know, anyway, I don't know. Um, so I don't know, Steve. Did you? I don't know if you had any particular cast other than the Simon and Simon guy, or because um, I know we were always we always get talking and we forget to mention who did what. So I don't know if you had the list of the cast. Uh, yeah, it's not it's not so much like an interesting note, uh, but uh, um, Peter Jason, who was doing the mouth trumpet that you were talking about, he's a uh, a carpenter favorite. I will say that taking double stuff Oreos and an apple are two things I never thought to put together. But um, uh, that aside, uh, I think <laughs> well, it's all about notable. a balanced diet. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, I think he's a notable carpenter regular. Um, uh, he and, is then, and this was actually his first collaboration with John Carpenter. Okay. I wasn't sure if he's somewhere with, in, in big trouble in little China. I missed him, but yeah, um, that makes sense. Cause he's, he's going to appear in they live and then a couple other things later on. So, oh, so many movies. Yeah. <laughs> Basically uh, every movie, every movie after this, you will find Peter Jason. I, th- I think the only film that he doesn't have between now and ghosts of Mars, I don't think he was in memoirs of the invisible man, which is, which is one of the few that I have not seen. Um, so I've got to procure a copy of that. Uh, before we cover it on the show, well, but, a, uh, I, I looked it up. It's available for streaming. We can we can get to it. It's available now. So which that hasn't always been the case. So we'll we'll get there. I, I got it yeah. on Blu-ray because I'm a weirdo. No, you're not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You with all with all your movies and all your toys and your hookers and your blackjack and you know whatever. Anyway, so there are seldom are there hookers. In I, my I just like I just like that you have all these movies and all these toys and then you're like. Here's a box of movies I don't need anymore, and I still have That's them true. sitting in my office because I've not taken them back downstairs to try to integrate in my stacks. Because I'm like, this is going to blow up everything. So that's you know, another reason I got to get you over to the house, Steve, in order to <laughs> expose you to the box of movies that I oh want to get gosh. rid of that I could yeah. take to the exchange, but I much prefer just to hand off to friends. Oh, so it's it's uh, okay. Yeah, it's like you're like, oh, hey, you come over for conversation. Here's a parting gift. Bring a backpack. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a plastic bag. I'm not a <laughs> Yeah, like like you. So yes, Peter yeah. Jason is in this film. Yeah. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, the other uh, person that I wanted to mention only because and look, I, I'm well aware that anybody can return to education at any time in their lives. And I understand, too, that graduate students are not always the ones who graduated and then were in the real world for like two years and then went back to school. But uh, I have to mention that uh, Dirk uh, Dirk Blocker, uh, who's in a ton of stuff, like just look up his IMDb and he's he's in a ton of stuff. He's actually in Starman. Um, he plays Mullins in this. Uh, he, I'm, I want to know if it's a character choice for him to be like, you know what? Can I wear like just a, t- a shirt that's maybe a little too tight for me? And, and then <laughs> I'm balding, but I don't want to like get rid of, you know, my, my mullet. So um, I guess it's a skullet at that point. A skullet. Um, you know, he's like, can I just wear that? But it's always like frizzed out and it looks like, uh, I just haven't actually washed my hair in, in weeks. I wonder if it was a choice or if it was a, yeah, I don't know why this thing fascinates me so much, but as I was watching him, I'm just like, man, like he's a character actor. So maybe this was all his decision. And I'm like, it's really great, but it also looks like the town drunk just ended up in the uh, graduate student class somehow. Like, and there's nothing in the movie. Like he's not drunk throughout it or anything like that, but he just looks like the guy who was, 
you know, he should have been out there in the crowd of homelessness, uh, the, the schizoids, if you will. I will say as somebody who works on a college campus and is introduced to a wide cross section of graduate students as well as people that assist PhDs in their various pursuits. Yeah, I've totally seen this guy before. I just want to believe. Okay, so it probably was a choice. It feels real. Uh, that's, I, I that's want to believe it's saying. the same character no, from Starman. Uh, yeah, I want to believe he was cop number things. one. Sorry, I want to believe he was cop number one. Starman got disillusioned, went to college, and then after this, he ended up going back to the force and became Hitchcock and Brooklyn Nine Nine. That's my belief for Dirk Blocker. That's well, what you I see. Believe. We're also missing a very important role in there, and one that I previously brought up. He was the gentleman who was uh, riding a children's bicycle, holding a case of beer in Poltergeist. <laughs> well, I mean, that was in '82. So you go from that. He maybe you know he maybe, went back to school. Yeah, no, he became we're a cop. Some marks here. He, he, went to, he, he Wait, was doing that. He became. <laughs> he's the neighbor in that movie. No, 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 not the neighbor. He was the guy who was bringing the beer to uh, Craig T. Nelson, and then okay. the, the kids were messing with him with the uh with the remote control car and he dropped the beer and it was spraying all over the place at that yeah, point, my apologies yeah. i was just replaying poltergeist in my head i'm like wait wasn't that the neighbor and yeah okay no, no okay. the neighbor was the guy who kept uh, changing the channel from the football game to mr rogers <laughs> okay <laughs> no i want to believe at that point he got upset and he was like you know what i gotta get in law enforcement because these goddamn kids and then he became Look, a cop you know, let us just appreciate yeah. the fact that there was a time that essentially you could look like a gentleman like Dirk Blocker, which, to be fair, most of us could kind of look like Dirk Blocker and we could still get major movie roles. <laughs> <laughs> I need him to play the father of uh, Kyle Gass and something. I need to. Uh, that's what I need. That but. feels like a thing. <laughs> so this is completely unrelated to. Uh, well, I guess it's still uh, related to it, but I was looking at his IMDb and I zoomed in on Poltergeist and the movie underneath it. It's called The Border, and he played a character named Beef, and I read it as he was Beef in Poltergeist. And I'm like, why was the guy named Beef? I'm like, I don't even think they gave him a name, but apparently his name in Poltergeist is Jeff Shaw. Um, I'll take your word for it. I, I have to think that that's got to be somebody like the writer's uh, uh, neighbor or something. That's fair. <laughs> so, I mean, like, yeah, I, I think we've talked like, in terms of we just named some of the, the cast already in this. I don't know if there's anybody else like uh, uh, Dennis Nunn. We got to point out. Oh, yes. Because uh, yeah. Dennis Nunn and Victor Wong, you know, previous Carpenter alumni. Uh, I don't think we've mentioned, but Donald Pleasance is in this film. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of a big one. <laughs> yeah, he plays uh, Loomis, as Steve said. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, Alice Cooper also in this. Yes. Uh, fun fact, the first time that Alice Cooper ever met John Carpenter was at a WrestleMania, which what? I believe was WrestleMania 1 or 2, which yeah. would have put it in 1985 or 1986. And that basically set up a collaboration with them where they were like, they were at WrestleMania, they were hanging out together, and it's like, hey, we should do something together. Sure enough, a few years later, boom, they're in Polter they're in uh, Prince of Darkness oh, together. Could you imagine those first couple like VAP WrestleManias, like how much cocaine was going around? Oh, it would have been oh, insane. Oh my gosh. Again, oh, my gosh. because the, the earliest WrestleManias was all about that sort of rock and wrestling, so they were yeah. really bringing in the celebrity presence of it all. Yeah. And yeah, that early kind of going, I don't remember if it... I, and I wish I remember, but I, it was either at WrestleMania two or three that John Carpenter went to. And that was also where he met Rowdy Roddy Piper, who would, of course, uh, appear with him in They Live as his next film. Yeah, I just, oh my, like as much as like the 80s kind of destroyed the world 
to be a fly on the wall for that too, you know, just to watch everything going on would have been amazing. So, right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, all right. Yeah. So that, that, you're right. So we, you know, mentioned in the, the cast, there are some of the people that stood out. I mean, there, there's a lot of people here there. You have to have a body count and there's a lot of people in this. Um, so oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, um, so yeah, the, the premise is, uh, you know, we, we're talking about this already. It said, was it, um, the one priest who is like the part of the brotherhood of sleep passes away. And that's when Don, when Donald Pleasant shows up. Right. Um, and he finds out that this guy was kind of like a gatekeeper for like this evil and that it's, it's so evil that the Catholic church didn't know about it because they didn't want to well, know about they it. They deliberately held, uh, yeah. held it back. Yeah. Cause if, if that, if they, it's like basically like, Oh shit, if the world, if the world knows about this, then, then we're in trouble, you know? Cause yeah, it's a whole thing. Right. But then, uh, there was a whole thing earlier with Donald Pleasance's character and, um, we don't see this, but it's like, it happened before where Victor Wong as uh, professor Howard uh, Birak had a series of debates or at least a debate about faith versus science. And they respected each other enough that, um, priest reached out to him and was like, I need your help, which I don't know if this movie would actually exist today in a lot of ways, you know, in terms of like, I respect your opinion. Very much not today, but there was that period in like the 1960s, 1970s, where there was a lot of kind of progressive priests within the Catholic church. Mm -hmm. That was, it was the same sort of environment that gave us films like, uh, the exorcist where you kind of had like cool Catholic priests. Uh, the only thing is, is that the majority of the cool Catholic priests left the priesthood when the uh, revelations of child molestation came out. I've actually met some of those ex priests. One of the one of which went on to marry an ex nun. By the oh, way, well, there you go. <laughs> I mean, fair enough, right? Uh, my, uh, my my co host of the Cancer Man, his uncle was an ex priest who left the priesthood when he was basically one of those really cool uh, progressive p- priests that joined up in the 1960s where it was all like, hey, let's, you know, like do cool things. It was Vatican II, you know, the, a new uh, friendlier Catholic priesthood. And uh, yeah, basically when all the child molestation came out, he left the priesthood and he married an ex nun. I mean, wonderful the, people. Yeah. I mean, especially, I mean, like, well, that also shows like the fortitude of character of being like, I'm out, you know, so I can Yo, respect that. A thousand percent. Yeah. Right. Well, cause also too, like America as a country in like the late seventies and early eighties, it was because like, there's a lot of articles written about how we were becoming like a post, uh, post-Christian nation. God is and, dead. Yeah. Cover and, of time and, magazine. Yeah. And so I could see how, like, this is like, it's weird that this came out when it did it. It feels like it's a refreshing take of like, can we have an open conversation about this? Like I'll even put as much as I think the ending of that movie is a little weird, but like the last exorcism, like oh, that, sure. that yeah. kind of has that same type of vibe to it too, of like, I'm going to pull the curtain back and show you there's some bullshit going on here. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, yeah. It, it's very much in keeping with that. And one thing I appreciate about The Last Exorcism, it it acknowledges the inherent hypocrisy of a lot of kind of the traveling eva- evangelicals in mm-hmm. this case, but also allows the opportunity for them to be a legitimate person of faith. Yeah. And Prince of Darkness follows a similar kind of arc where we do have kind of the dark night of the soul for the Donald Pleasance character. But at the same time, he kind of gets past that and he's able to actually make good on some of his religious convictions and for Carpenter to write a character like that, considering that he has been historically critical about aspects of, of spirituality, spirituality. And we see that even going back to the fog Mm -hmm. and, you know, Troy Howard spoke of that in the book about, uh, uh, about that sort of intersection between Carpenter and, um, organized religion insofar that Carpenter doesn't seem to have a lot of trust 
in the institutions of religion, but he acknowledges that there could still be good people that can be good in despite, uh, despite the institutions of religion. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's where it's like, you know, like as much as I know we haven't even talked about this, that he's referred to this as the second film of his apocalypse trilogy, which I know you were going to bring up. Um, Certainly. Yeah. And so, so yeah, the whole thing is like, he's like, oh yeah, by the way, there's this uh, thing I found in this basement of this church. No one wants to look at. It's this big, uh, big spinning cylinder of green. Um, it, we believe it's the origins of Baja Blast. We don't know that for sure. Um, <laughs> that would have been more blue, right? <laughs> a little bit. It would have been a little more teal, right? It would have been a little bit more like, oh, it kind of tastes, it kind of tastes like evil, but evil, we can only get at a drive through, you know, anyway. So, um, so yeah, like he, he's like, you know what? Like, I like that. Like, so that's the premise is that he is a man of faith and is seeing something that's like almost like unknowable, right? Cause that's supposed to be the point of faith, right? Is believing in the unknowable and then being like, but I don't understand this completely. I need to bring a different approach. in." so that's why we get the professor bringing in his class over the weekend. And that's, that's the whole premise is that they're like, we need to figure out what's going on. And so like, um, so with that, I do, I do like, um, Steve mentioned how like it's this church that it's like, it, it almost, it almost feels like, um, like the church there almost feels like it should have been like the stand in for like the house and like it, where it's like, it's like, it's this pit of like something bad's here, but everybody's turning a blind eye to it type of thing. Mm. You know what? It's the vibe I get of like, like there was like one of the, one of the characters was like, Oh yeah, my husband's parents used to come here in the fifties and they just shut it down. It's like, no one talks about why that church was shut down and why it was partially abandoned. No one wants to acknowledge it because of the urban decay. You know, like, and it's like, there's that, like that element. And then also the homeless people around about how they're being affected. Like, yeah. And then just there, there's a lot here to chew on. So, um, so we kind of bungled through the cast. We bungled through the premise. It's been three hours, Steve. Uh, I think you should say something now. So say something smart in three, two, one. Something smart. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, no, I, I think, uh, I do think that what makes this movie, uh, I don't know. Do you guys consider this to be a cult movie? Like, I, I think that it's, I would it's not one so. of the ones it, that's it, immediately brought up. Yes. Okay. Um, I think, you know, his approach to this, um, and it's, it's to his credit, obviously that he was trying to go against the grain of, you know, what the slasher scene had had become. And actually uh, you mentioned that I was on at the devil's uh, ball to talk about shocker. You know, it would have been very easy. Like with shocker, Wes Craven is clearly trying to get another bite at the Freddy apple in the sense of like, I'm going to own this thing this time and I'm going to do something that'll be continuing that idea. But it, you know, will be my own thing that I can actually, lay claim to um it would have been very easier easy for carpenter to be like okay i'm gonna create the new michael myers and try and push that out there and i think that it's such an interesting choice to go this route um obviously carpenter is a smart guy say what you will about him curmudgeon um weed smoker slash video game player whatever uh he's clearly a very smart guy. Uh, cause this movie throws things around that I know that they're like, yeah, the smart Americans will get this. And I don't know why I Americanized it, but, uh, 
But I mean, I'm sure, you know, uh, there are probably real concepts in this film because I, I didn't do any of the backstory or the, the homework for the backstory in the sense of like, I'm sure that there are a lot of real principles here that he's interjected into this supernatural story that I'm just like, it, I'm not getting it, which is fine. You know, I, I don't think you need to be a quantum physicist, obviously, to enjoy this movie. Uh, but it, it's so unlike um, the horror of the time that it, it is interesting that uh, this movie, I, I don't know where it falls for the average Carpenter fan, uh, but it's it's one that I'm like, there's nothing else kind of in his filmography, I think, even though you say it's part of the Apocalypse trilogy. I don't think there's anything else like it in his his filmography. I you correct me if I'm wrong, but like, you know, you you could point to, um, you know, I don't want to say like, you know, Snake Plissken or um, oh God, his character, Jack Burton as being yes they're they're opposite of each other but like if you told me that the guy who made uh, big trouble in little china made the same movie as escape from new york i would get that right away i don't know that unless i have a full what's the word i'm looking for here a, a full um view of the things that he's made up until this point that i get that like oh no this is a john carpenter movie and i guess that's my roundabout way of saying I have lots of thoughts about this and they're kind of going all over the place. But um, yeah, I, I, I think that it's, it's such a smart movie, but at the same time, it's also um, distinct from not only that landscape, but from the rest of his filmography, go ahead and discuss. Well, to pick up on those sort of things, I do think that there are certain elements that had been pre-existing within his filmography that are represented within The Prince of Darkness. Um, for example, the broad notion of a group of people stuck in a centrally located city location, basically under siege. That's him echoing stuff that he had done in Assault on Precinct 13. And in terms of its connection within the very loose, broadly defined Apocalypse trilogy, which of course began in 1982 with The Thing, this is essentially him exploring the uh, essentially the end of civilizations. In the case of The Thing, it was a civilization in microcosm where it was this Antarctic group that was completely destroyed by the end of it. In the case of The Prince of Darkness, this is where it starts getting into interesting thematic territory because one of the things that Carpenter pointed out in various interviews is that there is a tendency that he identified that as a new epoch approaches, whether it be a millennial epoch, whether it even be a centennial epoch, people tend to go a little crazy. The notion that when we start reaching the end of something – then there starts being an anxiety about, well, maybe the rest of the world will end. And so the Prince of Darkness fits into that broad sort of millennial conversation about the end of the world. There's, it's, it's, notice, it's notable that the transmissions from the future that these people are experiencing are from the year 1999. And, uh, uh, and I'm trying to remember there was another film where he talked about, it's like, uh, I think it was maybe They Live, where was he was talking about, oh, this happened happens at the end of every century people go a little crazy about this <laughs> so that that kind of fits into the broad notions that he was exploring 
in his apocalypse trilogy, which of course he will follow up later with a prince with uh, in the mouth of madness, that it is him recognizing that we are essentially reaching the next millennium, anticipating the craziness that is to come, and essentially presaging that, setting up these sorts of narratives to predict the kind of crazy behavior that he know is going to come. Now, if we looked ahead to 1999, there was a lot of kind of crazy behavior that arose during oh, that. Yeah. Whether it be Y2K, whether it be the religious nuts in there, he was accurately predicting that there was going to be a time of turmoil. Not as necessarily as apocalyptic as he was predicting in his films, but he's a horror filmmaker. He's allowed a bit of exaggeration. So, so yeah. there is elements of this film that is reflective of his earlier filmography, but also it shows essentially where his mind was at, particularly in the view to cosmic horror, which was explored in a certain sense with the thing expanded upon when it came to Prince of Darkness and then made fully explicit with his full-on Lovecraftian homage within the Mouth of Madness. So uh, two things. One, I'd, uh, let me tell you my Y2K story real quick. You'll appreciate this. So sure. um, the night, the, the, the like going, like, I, mean, I know the whole, the, the Seinfeld thing of like the millennium would actually start on 2001, not 2000. I, I, I know all that, right? But yeah. Uh, go, C. Clark. Yeah, yeah. Going from, like, you know, uh, December 31st, 1999 to like, you know, January 2000. I remember I was at home in West Virginia. I was on a college break and my, my mom was already asleep and I just had nothing to do. So I was watching sudden death, the Jean-Claude Van Damme <laughs> film. It was on TV Fair enough. and I'm just like, all right. And then when it got close to midnight, I turned off my TV for a second. Cause I'm like, what's going to go on? I heard like seven different like gunshots because people just taking their rifles and just shooting them in the air. Cause of course, <laughs> West Virginia. And then I was like, huh? And I just turned the TV back on and watched the rest of sudden death. Like, I was like, I was like, is society collapsing? Oh no. Jean-Claude just like, he just saved the Stanley cup and also fought a penguin. We're good. Right. So, um, <laughs> so, um, I, I will counter that also saying, I think that I, I think he's also, I don't think he's necessarily a pessimist. However, Carpenter grew up in a time where you just went from like, you know, well, the, the, like growing up during like the summer of love and all that supposedly, you know, your mileage may vary about, you know, like, Oh, Woodstock was supposed to be amazing. Yeah. Go look on the West coast, see what shit was going on there anyway. Sure. Um, and like, you know, the 69, um, like what was it the democratic convention and then Watergate and then like Vietnam and everything else. I think he, had it in the back of his head or even the forefront that like the rot's going to come out whether mm. we want it to or not. Right. So I think even with the beginning of this movie where we're seeing like, you know, piles of ants doing their thing and it wasn't ants in the TV, which I don't know how one that, that uh, what's his name didn't smell frying ants with the TV, <laughs> but on how that TV didn't blow up because of all the ants. But it's like, you keep seeing all of that, right? And you keep seeing like, it's like, it, it's almost like the movie's already telling you it's too late, no matter what happens. Like, it's like, it's, this is already in motion. You can't stop it. But I think it's almost like this whole thing being buried for like, you know, for, you know, millennia, not millennia, but you know, thousands of years or whatever they say, like, was it? They said that they dated the lid. It was like 7,000 years old or whatever, something to that effect. It's like the rot that you're trying to contain because you won't acknowledge it, it's coming out. And I think that yeah. speaks a lot to like what was going on there. And I don't know. I don't mean, I don't know if that was necessarily his point, but 
that's what it feels like to me watching this where it's like, yeah, you're going to have people trying to do the right thing, but it's like, because so many people didn't do the right thing for so long, it's too late, which, you know, I don't like saying that out loud because it's 2022 and just, you know, look around, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like I'm, I, I'm, I, you know, it's, it, it's, you know, we laugh at it, but my God, you know, it's like if, 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 if people would actually like, you know, call a spade a spade, Maybe some of the shit could have been handled, but no, we just want to ignore it and be like, oh, like the Catholic church. Well, we give them autonomy because we don't want to think about it. You know, like, so it makes me think that especially the way that that canister looks, how it's like corroded or not corroded, but like something's coming off of it. Right. It looks like something you get like, um, well, it, it's yeah. something that ex is ignored. It is the idea that it is, it is basically punted for the future. And it, we, we exist in an interesting time insofar that essentially we are reconciling with the irresponsibility of previous generations that used to be in power. But at the same time, there is a certain amount of comfort to be found when looking back at these kind of millennial narratives where people considered that uh, society had reached the worst that it possibly could be. And yet society continued. So we exist in an interesting time where we're simultaneously dealing with the fact that everybody has messed up in the past, but also uh, reconciling with the fact that people at one time thought things were as worse as they could be, <laughs> and yet they still managed to get through it. So it, depending on your point of view, glass half empty, glass half full, whether or not we think, well, things can get infinitely worse or – Things were pretty bad back then, and they still managed to get through it. So whether or not you consider that a pessimistic, optimistic thing, that I think that's largely dependent upon you. Well, I mean, okay, yes. Hold hold a mirror to my face so I can shove my hand through. But uh, so um, <laughs> I also I think we talk about punting. Like the end of the movie kind of like points at the punting of like – you know, they, they, they handled it then, but 1999, it's still coming and, and it still changes the outcome. Like, you know, like, or I, well, say, I, yeah. I will say that yeah. there, there is a great, there is a great quote from Jameson Parker where he does say, this is our, uh, to the effect. And I don't remember the exact line, but this is our, this is our time to stand up. Yeah. This is our time to face the kind of darkness. And this is where we start uh, getting into very sort of the cosmic horror narrative, in particular how it hedges over into – and this is getting into super geeky territories, so you'll have to indulge me. But when we talk about cosmic horror and we talk about the work of H.P. Lovecraft, uh, my mind immediately goes to, of course, the uh, tabletop role-playing side of things, which uh, Call of Cthulhu which was the big tabletop role-playing version of the expanded lore of H.P. Lovecraft. And one of the reoccurring motifs that arises in so many of those stories that you could tell in that sort of closed system of uh, role-playing narrative is that you can't stop what is to come. When the stars come, there's nothing humanity can do. The best you can do as heroes in this sort of narrative is just delay things a little bit, push back the apocalypse just one more day. And that's one of the things that I appreciate about the Prince of, uh, Prince of Darkness. You never get the sense, particularly with the amb ambiguous ending, that they have prevented this great, terrible thing from happening. But you know what? They prevented it from happening today. They prevented it from happening at this moment. And that is one of the big essences of sort of cosmic horror there is always going to be that looming destruction, but people of 
Will and people of character can maybe buy us just a few more days. And I think that's what they do accomplish in Prince of Darkness, though it does leave that sort of big lingering question. It's still going to happen, right? (laughs) The year 1999 is still going to come on, and our characters are undeniably transformed by their experience. But undeniably, they did stop the apocalypse from happening in 1987, right? And that's something to be commended. Yeah, I mean, and that's when we got like one of the uh, later on we got one of the Bush presidencies, right? No, I'm kidding. Uh, so uh, I know, <laughs> no. So no, that, that you're right. Like, I mean, it's just you know, like it, it's uh, it's it's like almost that Futurama thing where they they shot all the garbage out in space and then it came back and they decided to shoot it out again. They're like, that'll be the future's problem, <laughs> you know? Like so. Oh, yeah. What's yeah. the thing? They they moved the planet away oh, that's from right. the sun. Yeah, that's something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something to that effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Like, I, I, I get like the delaying of the inevitable. It's like it's and then in the microcosm on the thing of like you know the camp's burning and it's going to get cold soon. Like, but let's just sit here and just rest a while. Like they've delayed whatever's going to happen, you know, and we don't know. Like I like and yeah. I like Carpenter's the master of like I I love that he always like for the most part denies you like the happy ending. For the most, yep. like every single time, like even the end of Big Trouble, it's like you get the monster on the back of the Pork Chop Express. It's like it's funny. It's like, but we don't know what's going to happen with that monster and Jack Burton. Like you know, like, um, like I, I guess maybe the happiest ending is like Starman. I don't know, like maybe right that might be his happiest ending movie where it's like, oh, Karen Allen's going to have a kid, and then there's going to be a short-lived TV show that wasn't very good. Um, you know, (laughs) which I've never watched the episodes of, but that's one of the things that, again, I appreciate in terms of his horror narratives. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that has been often commented about, and I, I, I frequently go back to this when discussing about horror, uh, Stephen King, uh, mentioned this in, and explained it in the way that kind of sunk in with me the best that horror is in its essence, a somewhat conservative genre insofar that you have the status quo. And you have an external influence that interrupts the status quo. Uh, that That is the horror thing. And most horror stories involve defeating that external influence, that element of change, and reestablishing the status quo. Carpenter engages with that to a certain level, but he also adds an element of what if. So in the case of, of The Thing... Or let's let's go back to one of his first horror films, uh, the case of Halloween. We've defeated Michael Myers. We've shot we've uh, shot him six times, and he fell out the window. <laughs> but there's still that what if yeah. because we still hear that his breathing in the thing in in the air. In the case of the thing, we've defeated the thing. Everything's fine except one of them may be the thing, and they may just go to sleep. So there's still that lingering. In the case of uh, Prince of Darkness. We've smashed the mirror. We prevented the rise of the great Satan or whatever you want to define it as. But there's still that question. Is it completely defeated? So what he does is he reestablishes the status quo like a traditional horror narrative. But then he still introduces that small element of chaos. He still introduces that small element of what if you well, have not completely defeated the evil? It's still lurking. Well, I'd even even like let's throw this back to Dark Star, where it's like it's it's a nihilistic ending. And even um, I saw in Precinct Thirteen, it's like you have the two main guys that you know, like Solo knows he's like still on his way out, right? But it's like we don't know exactly what's going to happen. It's like so you don't get like like we don't get 
um, complete resolution there. Um, the Christine shows, you know, um, the car, like, yep. like the whole thing. So like, um, I'm, I'm all for this. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm like, give me like, like, I think I've said this, I've said this before on the show that, um, as much as I've seen the thing over and over and over again, and I adore it. Um, and you know, <clears throat> some people I've heard their voices talking about it, um, while watching it, um, like independently of recording right now. Um, I will say that, uh, that was me that only was because I call Paul when he's watching the movie yeah. and I'm like, are you watching? You're like, do you see the thing? Is it there? Is are you the watching thing? the thing? You're watching the thing right now? Uh, watching the thing? Where, where are yeah, they? Where are is, is the dog there yet? Are they chasing? Are they chasing the yeah. thing? Is the thing happening <laughs> right now? Is the helicopter coming oh, around? Oh, is, uh, did David Keith, do you see his really bad cast? Do you see it right now? Do you see it? <laughs> <laughs> you no. see the weird tangling testicles of that one duck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, no, like as much as I've watched that movie and I, it's one of my favorites, one of my top three films ever. Um, like I showed it to my wife once and she got mad cause she's like, but who was it? And I'm like, that's not, that's the point. She's like, I don't like it. <laughs> so like, I won't show her Prince of Darkness cause she'll be like, and I'm like, all right. Like, you know, like, like I feel like what happens if he touches the mirror, what happens? And like, but what happens is that the title card punches out and that's the end of the, the end of, uh, the, uh, trailer. That's what happens. It just shoots out at you in 3d and it says Prince of darkness. That's the end of the movie. Well, uh, the funny thing well, is the uh, other I, thing, I sorry. A, oh. a quick, a quick review that like, you know, a user uh, submitted a review and they were talking about how the ending was a tease. And I, I, I can't help but think that that, that sort of mindset is a very sort of modern mindset where we believe that any film that ends on a sense of ambiguity is basically setting up for a sequel. That seems to be how we've been conditioned as a, uh, of an audience to think that, well, maybe they just ended the film on an open question. They weren't intending to answer this question. And the thing that, uh, from pop culturally that, uh, you know, was like raising so much that kind of captured that vibe is the ending of uh, Christopher Nolan's inception. The fact that it didn't end on a definitive statement. Was it a dream? Was it reality? It was an open question and people lost their goddamn minds. I saw that in the theater. I saw the theater. People, I could, I could hear people getting pissed walking out of that film. And I'm like, I was like, like, like I was being like Ryback, feed me more, like bring me more. Like I was like, please, you know, like that, that was like, that was perfect. That was perfect ending for me. Like, like you guys can't appreciate that. Like it's been showing you this entire time that you're not supposed to know, get over yourself, you know, but well, yeah. And, and people, there are some people that do not like that ambiguity. I applauded that ambiguity when I saw it in inception, because I realized exactly what it was. It was the open ended question. Yeah. And yet at the same time, there was a whole slew of people that were trying to dissect it and trying to come up with a definitive answer one way or the other. Was it a dream or was it reality? Not realizing there's no definitive answer. Yeah. And the same thing can be applied into Prince of Darkness. We don't know what is going to happen. There is an implication that the evil is still coming. And that's where I choose to believe it. Because, again, this is kind of fitting into the nihilistic cosmic horror theme. That, again, you cannot defeat evil. You can only delay it. But at the same time, it's not sequel baiting. It's just being true to the, this particular genre of horror where you can oh, – it's okay not to have an definitive ending. Yeah, I mean also we didn't forget to mention – sorry, Steve, please Yeah, continue, I'm going to cut you off here, Paul. My <laughs> oh, no, please. Uh, please do. No, uh, I think also that you know this ending 
is in contrast to what he was trying to get away from. You know, I mean, the jump scare ending was a big piece of 80s horror. So, you know, even if you wanted to say like, oh, he's doing a horror ending or he's baiting for a sequel. Like if you really want baiting for a sequel, it's any time that Jason or Freddy or Michael Myers returned in the final scene. You know, uh, I guess I should take Michael out of that equation. But like the fact that, you know, those movies end in a way that like, oh, you're supposed to be safe and things have ended. Let's get you for one more scare. He's actually saying like, oh, maybe there is more to this story and something that you were fed throughout the entire film that I'm, I'm making good on. You know, it doesn't feel, you know, because people accused him of the same thing with the ending of Halloween. Mm. And, you know, his his whole point was just that, like, you know, evil, you know, you, Michael Myers is something more than than just a man at this point. Um, and that's why not die tonight. But no, I was going to say, but, yeah, he, yes. but evil does. Die I was tonight. trying to avoid that. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the it's part of the language of Halloween. Embrace yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think that that's what this ending represents more so than any sort of desire to return to this. I mean. Look, it would have been really cool if in like 1999 Carpenter just popped up and was like, "Hey, I made a, you know, a, a sequel to Prince of Darkness." Like that would have been amazing. But like, except it would have been a 20 minute movie. Oh wait, yeah. the evil shows up. You're all fucking. <laughs> you're all dead. <laughs> I didn't say the full no, word. No, no, it would have been called. It would have been called Princes of Darkness. That's a sequel. That's no. I'm kidding. And the Spin Doctors will do the theme if, song. If they pulled it from no. the window and it was just Prince, and then he sang Little Red Corvettes, and then no. He would just, no, he'd be like, I'm going to sing Erotic City to upset everybody. That's what's going to happen. Hey, uh, in no. 2000, party's over. We're out of time. You could have made this That's, work. Oh, my gosh. What if like what if we do a fan edit of this where whenever the hand reaches through, you just see like um, like a hand with like a ring and it has like a little frill and a purple sleeve that they're being That's pulled what, through. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that would have been amazing. <laughs> so I, I know that that's a uh, that's a good joke answer, but uh you know, the, the thing that occurred to me, um, because I watched Shocker, I decided to later that week revisit New Nightmare. And I do think it would be interesting to see, like, what Cameron or Cameron, sorry, Jesus Christ, um, Carpenter, you know, how he would have reapproached his story. You know, I think it'd be interesting to see him revisit this material. Um, I. I know I just brought the conversation to a dead hole, but like there's part of me. It's man, I kind of want to see that movie now. And I, I know that the, there's the easy joke answers and, um, you know, Carpenter's second half of his career is certainly not nearly as illustrious as his, his beginnings. But, uh, I don't know. I, I don't see this as a, a, uh, you know, uh, Prince of darkness two coming soon type of ending. No, no, oh, no, no, no. And honestly, I, I don't know. One, if you would have any interest in kind of re-examining or reviving this kind of narrative. And even if he did, I think his – and I, I don't want to put words in his mouth. Uh, I'm, I'm not John Carpenter, but I have to f- think that anything past the ending of Prince of Darkness is essentially just apocalypse. And he's he's done the apocalypse. I mean, he did that within the mouth of madness, which I'm sure you gentlemen will uh, get to eventually in your year plus of Carpenter. <laughs> yeah, I should change um, the audio to be like the it's the year and more of Carpenter. You know, I should uh, I should re- reach out and make that happen. Yeah, it it it, it is notable that the o- the only time that he's been uh, attempted to return to want uh, something he had previously done in terms of directing 
was Escape from New York because he did Escape from L.A., which, again, I will still go to bat for that film. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, I, we'll, we're going to get there. And if you'd like to come I on for that. I know you'll get there. But, like, if you want to come on for that and defend it, like, I will, you know, like, it's going to be a little bit. Too. Okay. I will do it. It's, like, it's funny. You did The Year of Carpenter. I chose, like, the the least popular Carpenter films. <laughs> no, that's not true. Like, no, no, no. I, I, like, um, no, like, the, so, okay. So, with this being said, with, like, the not least, least, least popular, um, I... I do have some problems with this movie and maybe I'm being a nitpicker. Sure. So you guys can all like call me out on this. I, um, I, I, sorry, Steve, go ahead, please. No, I was just going to ask if it's because he grabbed an apple and then double stuffed Oreos. Cause that was my big problem. Again, so. it's a balanced diet and honestly, <laughs> balanced both diet. of those are vegan. <laughs> I like how I returned to a joke that didn't work like 20 <laughs> minutes ago, but I'm like, well, ah, Steve, I'm Steve you know what show uh, we're it allowed doing. me the opportunity to point out that Oreos are indeed vegan. So anybody who says that they eat a vegan, de- ve- vegan diet for uh, health, uh, remind them that uh, Oreos are indeed vegan. And also if you go and look at any like, like vegan, like uh frozen made meals like those are not healthy they just don't have meat like yeah they just don't they, they don't involve the uh suffering of animals yeah it's like like all the amy's products like sure like go go look that up anyway sorry it's just they're still tasty don't get me wrong but it's oh, like they're incredibly tasty yeah. you ever been to the vegan donut company in cleveland uh i well i they had a they had a food truck i but anyway yeah i have not had a vegan donut. Um, anyway, fantastic that, donuts. That, that sounds very will, unpatriotic. They, I'm kidding. I, I don't know. No, 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 brother. You, you know, <laughs> no, some of these I, donuts are I'm, just like, I'm just oh, saying God. donuts for me, I shouldn't have regardless of vegan or not, but I'm just making the joke. But yeah, no, anyway. So uh, my nitpicks with this movie are, um, I so part of me really, really appreciates that because it is kind of, you know, it's a lower budget and it's it, it returns him to his roots of like, you know, quick and dirty in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. but also focused. Um and when I said this ties into Uzumaki a little bit, that there's a lot of like unknowable things going on. Sure. Um, I feel like for me with Uzumaki, it's because I think there's that um, separation of East West storytelling that I can kind of let some of that go, go. Cause I'm like, okay, it's a culture I'm not familiar with. It's, it's a storytelling device that I'm not familiar with. This feels a little loose to me in what works and what doesn't work in terms of like, you know, possessions and everything else going on and somebody that has a blue oyster cult tattoo on their arm and then they become a, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's, it's, it's what, like, here, the, the, what I was, the, the way I was trying to think about this before I started recording tonight was it's like you have that artist that has like three, four great albums and it's like, and then they put on another one that is completely going in a different direction. It's like, cool, but maybe not every single track works for you but you like like a lot of it, but maybe not all of it. That's kind of how I feel about Prince of darkness where it's like, Oh, there's a lot here. I dig not all of it connects for me. And I'm trying to overlook like, you know, like skip track, skip track, get me to the shit that I like. Um, so there's a lot here that I can appreciate, but some, it's like some of, some of the logic doesn't make sense. And I know the argument's going to be, it's not, it's unknowable. It's, it's like, you know, anti God's son in this tube. And it's like, sure. But I, I still want a little bit more consistency in how things work. Like why do bugs just show up sometimes? Why do, why do all the homeless people like just, ha- just have knives and stab people? Why does the one well, guy, the, the, they sorry. do acknowledge the whole homeless people, the, the fact that they are, 
because they are uh, perceived as being schizophrenic, mm -hmm. they're more e easily manipulated by the presence of the evil. Yeah, but I get that. Yeah, I get that. It's, I mean, I understand that. And it's like, and there's very striking visuals that is very reminiscent of Assault in Precinct 13 when they look out and see them all lined up looking. Like, like it's cool. It's really, really cool. I get that. But like the way the goo works and the way that like just it's, there's, there's inconsistency there that I'm, it doesn't, for me as a film, it doesn't work as well for me knowing what Carpenter, especially since he wrote the script. Um, I'm sorry. No, uh, Martin Quartermass, uh, Quatermass, Quatermass, Quatermass. I like that. He was like, he was the best guy I could work with. He liked all my revisions and everything. I thought that was funny, <laughs> especially when all the reviews came out. They're like Martin Quatermass script. They're like, no, it's like, you guys don't. You're idiots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you don't realize. Oh, you guys are morons. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just think that like, especially since he's been so good at like setting up his own rules, I don't think that this always follows all of them. That's just, that's just me. I, Maybe I'm wrong I, about that, but I feel no, that No, no, I, I will readily admit he basically plays fast and loose in terms of the stuff that, uh, that it, the conceits that are being introduced. Uh, for example, how the goo works, why, is the lady like spewing out all the goo and then it goes back into her. I don't know, but it's kind of a cool visual. And I think that's ultimately all uh, Carpenter was interested in doing. I don't think he was as interested in establishing sort of an internal logic to these happenings. And I think that may have been partially his point that this was something that was the unknow unknowable, which whether or not that's going to work for you, whether or not you're going to be able to suspend the disbelief or willing to suspend kind of that sort of narrative flow, that is going to be something entirely personal unto you. I will say, even as somebody who is a fan of this film, and I didn't start out being a fan of this movie. When I was younger and I was first going through all of the Carpenter films, Prince of Darkness was initially a film that kind of left me flat. This is a film that I've grown to appreciate over the years, but at the same time still realize there are various clunky elements of this movie. I find the, op the first half of this film much more compelling than the second half. Mm -hmm. Or to, to be uh, more accurate, the first half, excellent. Then we get into like the next 25%, which is a bit clunky. And then the climax I still think is good, but that intersectional bit, it's not as fully fleshed out as perhaps you would like. And it's not as internally consistent as perhaps it could have been. And that perhaps that, that wasn't something that Carpenter was going for. I think that this was, I think this was Carpenter basically doing a big idea script that he was throwing out a lot of big ideas, finding ways to connect them, and not all of those pieces fit together as well as he perhaps could have. And perhaps this was a benefit or a uh, product of the fact that this was a relatively fast production. You know, I think they announced this that, that he was doing this movie in early 1987, and then he was in production like three days later. So I think this may have just been something that he hammered out pretty quick and then just started shooting. That's fair. And it, it may be any sort of. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. No, no, I'm saying it may be because like we, we, um, Steve, I want you to speak up in a second, uh, please. And thank you. Um, that, um, I think that when we talk about him revisiting the fog, when he was doing it like mid editing, where he's like, we don't got it. We got to shoot more. There was a little bit more leeway there. Maybe in terms of this, since the turnaround time was so fast, it's like, well, this is what we got. Not that he's not that he is 
like he thinks like in terms of shooting, he mentioned this was like his like happiest he was making a movie. Like, don't get me sure. wrong, but it's easy to be like, we got it all. And then get your dailies in and be like, oh, this isn't connecting quite right. I'm not saying this is a broken film, not at all, but there is bits that if there had been the budget, the uh, uh, Charles band budget of 4.5 million, uh, maybe you can come back and do some reshoots to kind of have a little bit more connective tissue. Cause I feel like I'm not saying it doesn't work the way it is. It's just, it's, it's a little loose with some of the logic, which I understand that's kind of the point. So Steve, um, speak, like speak to your feelings about it. Cause I also want to say a thing after you say a thing. Well, so, uh, r- real quick yes. before we, we jumped Steven. <laughs> sorry, Steve. <laughs> so you on this. But where, where this film also kind of feels like for me is it, it kind of feels like what I will, uh, the alliterative, alliterative term that I will use is free form phantasmagoria. In so far that there is a tendency sometimes with horror films and horror narratives that you don't have to make everything make explicit sense because the genre of horror allows you a certain kind of malleability to just kind of do what you want. It's the nightmare logic. And it's it's worth comparing what Carpenter was doing in this where he had completely creative control to what he was doing with uh, what some of his contemporaries consider uh, David Cronenberg, that what what he was doing with films like uh, Scanners or Videodrome, where if you dig deep in those films, there's not a lot of internal consistency to them, yet it still kind of works by virtue of the fact that he maintains a steady tone throughout all of this. And we know that Carpenter was a contemporary of Cronenberg. He sat down and did an interview with David Cronenberg along with Mick Garris and uh, uh, John Landis. They were all sitting down together. I have a feeling that maybe Carpenter was trying to hit that same kind of vibe. That maybe it was just like, it doesn't matter if it if all the pieces fit it, uh, internally consistently. As long as we keep a steady tone, the audience will be on board with it. All right, on to Steve. Sorry to interrupt there. Okay, so you remember how earlier I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to come in with, like, really unimportant nuggets? Well, here you go. So I neglected to to mention this when we were talking about the cast, but I wanted to make a a quick mention of Tom Bray, um, who is in uh, probably the most 80s of 80s shows uh, he was on two seasons of a show called Riptide. Oh, Riptide. Um, yes, oh, Riptide. And he yeah. was on Prowler, too. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, Riptide is a, uh, is a show that kind of has a special place in my heart. I haven't revisited it uh, maybe since I was a kid. I'm sure it's uh, aged well. Yeah, I mean, it, it was three guys on a boat, and Tom Bray's character was, like, the science nerd, and there was a robot, and it was just, it was crazy. Like, it was... Excess at its best, I guess, in that sense. So I wanted to make a quick mention of Riptide, um, which I know all of our listeners now are like, that's great, Steve. Can two of the, can one of the other two people talk now? No, they're going to be um, like, oh, wait, uh, you're talking about Riptide? Uh, we're going to we're gonna quadruple our listenership. So thank you for that. <laughs> He's referencing a 40-year-old show <laughs> about guys who solve crimes on a boat. Um, <laughs> or helicopter. Sometimes it's a helicopter. Yeah, that's fair, yes. <laughs> That's getting into airwolf territory, right? <laughs> yeah. But there was a helicopter in Riptide, right? There was a helicopter that showed up. There sometime. was, yeah. yeah. I, I think they had a boat and a helicopter. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting is is that you probably could do like an entire like retrospective of like 80s shows that somehow revolved around a vehicle. 
<laughs> you know, like that was a thing. Again, Airwolf, uh, Night Rider. We can um, do Night this. Rider. Street Hawk. Uh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I mean, you can even the nice um, new Viper. I, I understand. The A Team's Van. Yes. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was also uh, the cartoon um, Teen Machine. Was it Teen Machine? No, Turbo uh, Teen. What was the show Turbo where team. the guy turned into the car? Auto. Uh, yeah. It was Auto Man. Auto Man. There's also that 90s show called Tracks T R A X that was like with the really souped up truck. Like just anyway. Like yes. There's so multiple ways to derail the conversation. <laughs> no, you're good. Yes. Well, here's a question for for as a creative that is that works in the in the realm of horror. Do you feel that there is a need for internal consistency or do you think that the genre of horror can lend itself to kind of a looser narrative format where things don't necessarily have to make logical sense? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I I, I think that and I talked about this actually with Junji Ito last episode. You know, I'm sometimes too literal for my own good. Like my wife will sometimes call me Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy. Like. Uh, sometimes because you, you have sick abs steve you have sick abs we know that so <laughs> your reflexes are too quick yes. Yes. <laughs> uh so i i tend to be too literal like the ideas that occur in this film i don't know that i would have ever gotten there and i've also talked about the fact on the show that like there are certain movies that where i i I let that play out and I'm okay with it. Um, Mandy is one that I, Mandy is a movie that I'm like, this doesn't make any sense, but it totally makes sense. And I, I let it go. Like I, I love Mandy, but like if I'm, if I'm my normal literal self, I, I would probably pick Mandy apart, but there's something about that movie that I just kind of love. It's, it's, it's a dreamlike quality, if that's the best way of putting it. Like, I never question the, the things that happen in Mandy when normally I probably wouldn't others. Maybe mm. it's just because of how wonderfully well it's made. Um, you know, at that same time, I always talk about, like, I, I for whatever reason, uh, when The Ring came out, I could never get around the idea of, like, well, I'm like, why is it a videotape? Why is this the thing, other than this is the current convention of how people share things? Like, there's no real reason why it's on a videotape and no. uh i i that for whatever reason stopped me from enjoying that movie so when i say sometimes i get too literal that's what i mean is that i can sometimes get in the way of myself enjoying something if i would just let one damn thing go um and it's not always like oh well there's a you know a missed plot point or you know there's a hole in the structure of the story or something like that i can still enjoy those movies it's just every once in a while I get stuck on one detail and I can't buy into that horror logic that you were talking about. You know, um, I, 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 I don't want to say this and, and make it sound like I'm trying to make this movie sound cooler than it is. But like, I look at this movie and I'm like, you know what, what if this was released today? Like who would be putting this out? And I'm like, this is an a 24 movie. It's not exactly, so, yeah. the, you know, it's not exactly to that formula, but it, it's, I'm like, I would see, I would not see, expect this from a studio. I would expect this from, you know, an A24 or somebody, you know, even with a smaller budget, not budget, sorry, um, uh, distribution house, that kind of thing. So um, I guess my point is, is that like, I really enjoy this movie. I really like the fact that it, it tries to meld science and religion. Um, 
And and I never get mad at the fact that I'm like, I'm not smart enough to follow this conversation. He just mentioned tachyon. (laughs) I I know that word because from Star Trek, so I can follow that. But like, fair enough. (laughs) There are conversations in this movie where each time I watch, I'm like, I'm not following. I'm like, I know it makes sense to somebody, but I'm like, I'm not following. And I don't care. Um, I I, I give this movie a little bit more, um, you know, leeway in, in that that sense. But it's funny if you were you, you guys were talking about it, maybe being on the the back half of his filmography or maybe the dead middle. You know, we we talked about um, Christine a couple episodes ago, and I, I I each time I watch that movie, I like it a little bit more. But there are things that happen in that movie that I get stuck on um, that keep me from enjoying it as much as I could. If I'm choosing the movie that I think is better, and I don't know, that's that's such a shitty way to put it. But like, if I'm I'm gonna rank them is maybe a better way of putting it. I I may put Prince of Darkness ahead of Christine. Mm. Well, Old choice. I mean, I mean, yeah. The 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 quantum physics conversation in Christine's a little that's it's not handled as well. I get it. No, no. Well, nobody calls anybody a shitter in Prince of Darkness. So oh, I wish. I wish the priest would have been like, death to the shitters and just throw the axe at the mirror. No, I so mean, I, I personally would go higher on Prince of Darkness as well, mm. n- taking nothing away from Christine, but just because where this film intersects in the kind of horror that it's exploring. I am very much a fan of the unknowable cosmic horror just because that's the stuff that resonates with with me on the things that can still kind of send a shiver down my spine. And I like elements of ambiguity in my horror. I don't necessarily need it and I don't judge a a film negatively if they don't deliver that. But when it starts getting into kind of that horror sweet spot for me, it tends to be a little bit more on the unknowable. It tends to be a little bit more on the, well, the pieces don't exactly fit together, but the vibe is there. The vibe that is an an unsettling, unknowable sort of vibe. And I think the uh, Prince of Darkness edges into that sort of vibe. By no means is is it my favorite Carpenter film. Uh, By no means would I consider it one of his best movies. But there is something undeniable about when this film is firing at on all cylinders. There is something just so, ah, it's just it's direct line into, into kind of the pleasure centers of my horror fandom. Oh, so uh, it, it's it's Carpenter's concept album. You know, like that's I think that's the best way that you put out big ideas where it's like, all right, you're in, you're out. It's like I think Carpenter and the Flaming Lips should meet up sometime because they make something weird, you know, like whatever. Like it's like, oh, I dig this, but like something doesn't connect. Like that's for me. Um, but it's yeah, it's not my favorite Carpenter film. I do enjoy it a great deal. And I appreciate all the effort going into it. I love I love the like the swinging for the fences mentality. I also like that this has a much more independent vibe to it, purposely so. Than like what we've gotten from him the last couple of times. I just, you know, for me, for like, I'll just put this out there. We can wrap it up here. Cause you know, it's like, you know, we don't want to go two and a half hours versus four. <laughs> um, uh, is that I think where I hold it to a higher like judgment is that if you're going to bring science in and like logic in that sense, give me a little bit more because you're already propositioning that there's going to be a lot of logic brought into this. 
You know what I mean? Like it's just if you're gonna if you're gonna just be like, oh, spooky shit's happening or things that are unknowable. There, there's other films that I can kind of get away with, like in terms of like what Steve was talking about, where it's like, I don't like I don't know the secret sauce. Everybody's mileage may vary, right? In terms of like I'm in, like I won't I won't question this. Like hand wave it away. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. But you mentioned the first half of this being way better than the second half. I agree with that, where it's like, oh, we're bringing in computers and beep boops and everything. Cool. Like, like, um, I would say that to me, something like, um, and this is not the same film, but something like Event Horizon brings in a lot more like, like logic that it still kind of holds together when we find out what's going on there. To a certain sense, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. It's just, I'm not saying that movie's perfect either, but I adore that movie. Oh, I I love Men Horizon. Yeah, but it's like in the same sense of like it's still ra- grounded in the reality of like, oh shit, we got to get out of here. Let's just let's just blow this up and use the escape, like the forward docks, the the, the the headpiece as the escape ship because we don't know entirely what's going on here. But this ship went to hell. Let's get out of here, like you know, like. But at the same time, well, the, the, the logic uh, kind of runs through. It's, it doesn't betray I, itself. Sorry, please. Can I ask a quick question? Yes. yes. Go for it, dude. I'm going to jump in here. So, uh, El Goro brought up Ghostbusters earlier, and it's, it's one of my top, like, ten films. I don't know where I place it. It might be even in the top three, but I, I love 1984's Ghostbusters. And it's, it's interesting, you know, if you think about it in those terms, I never, ever, I'm never stuck on a point of logic or the science of it in Ghostbusters, I just immediately buy it. Is it so? So my question for you, Paul, is is that like I think Ghostbusters, the thing that it does better maybe than Prince of Darkness is, is that it uses its quote unquote science sparingly, like where there may be a line just that explains something in a way that really kind of doesn't explain it. But you're like, well, I guess they gave me. Well, you get to the end where it's like, we should cross the beams. And they're like, they're like, literally we you told me we shouldn't do that. They're like, yeah, well, there's a big marshmallow, man. We got nothing to lose. Like there's almost like an effort mentality at the end of that, where it's like, this could work, but we don't know where I feel like this kind of where it's like, Oh, like, like I, I, sorry, I'm cutting you off. I apologize. Like, like the whole thing here, it's like, they're approaching this from a lot of different angles, like translating the text, which by the way, I like that one of the pages in the book shows a clear drawing of a cylinder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's just like, Oh, all right. We know this is the owner's manual for the devil tube. We get it. Right. So um, <laughs> I believe that was the first soda can. Yeah. So. Yes, yeah. Like, you know, it's like, this is where, this is where surge is made. And this is where all surge will be made after this. Um, no, um, it's just like, it's just, I like that approach. I like that. They're the whole thing where the, the, the one person, Lisa Blount's character is putting in the, the, the equations. And then it's like, I like, there's that certain amount of like, this doesn't make sense to me because I'm seeing math and it's not adding up. I appreciate all that. Don't get me wrong. It's just that it's like when we get to like uh, mouth squirty stuff and then people rising from the dead and there's a bunch of bugs and it's like, there's, I don't feel like there's a consistency for all of that. And then also the girl on the cot where she's full of liquid and she's falling apart, but then she's not. And then she's like, she is the son of the anti-devil. Like it just, I feel like, okay. So, so you, yes. you cut me off and Sorry. I'm going to cut you off. Oh no. So, uh, so going back to Ghostbusters, I think one of the things that makes that movie work is there's a wonderful scene between um, Winston and Ray where they're in the car before the finale kicks in, where they're talking about uh, the fact that they just keep getting busier. And 
you know, Winston brings up the Bible, Revelations, Judgment Day. I think that that sells so much of the science and the supernatural within that that I think it puts it into a a, uh, a place where you're like, well, what would these guys think of this kind of thing? Where it's interesting that Ray hadn't even considered that scenario, and he's kind of bummed out when like he realizes like. Oh Jesus! What if that is what's happening right now? Um, <laughs> I, I think that that's a a, a, mo- a a wonderful scene in a movie that you know maybe you can take it out and it still the movie still works, but I think it adds so much texture to that film. W- would a scene like that here, where they would have transitioned from like being so science heavy to the supernatural, would something like that maybe had satisfied you a little bit more, maybe, like some sort of but what piece well, that would have transitioned? What about Ray getting and, a BJ from a ghost in a fort? What about that? <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I'm I'm actually of the opinion that this film actually predicts the same kind of art um, critiques that you're leveling against it basically in the opening 10 minutes, because one of the things that we have is that when we have the Victor Wong character, when he's uh, speaking to his class, he says, um, say goodbye to classical reality. Because our logic collapses on the subatomic level into ghosts and shadows. Basically, it's Carpenter acknowledging that when when one reaches the quantum level of physics, the traditional rules that govern our reality break down. And consider that a thesis statement for the rest of the film. And that could be viewed as kind of a hand-waving thing of this can explain any sort of inconsistency, but it's also part of the broader thesis of this movie, that what we are dealing with is the most foundational elements of reality. And as it is in science, as it is in the fiction of this film, when we get into the most foundational elements, things stop making sense. Things do not adhere to our classical reality. And I think we even have characters that say yeah. that anytime they start digging in deep, you know, a real their realism starts it starts interfering with their ability to understand these sort of concepts. Yeah. Uh, Lisa, Lisa Blount's Blount, character she says that. that. She's like, the, the, the more she zooms in, it doesn't make sense. That's the whole exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they do do an attempt to kind of prepare the audience for that sort of thing. It's like, hey – Shit isn't going to make sense moving forward. You just kind of got to flow with it. Yeah. Whether or not that is successful, I think they could have done it more elegantly. And I will say that may be a detriment to the filmmaking in this movie. But at least they do make the attempt to establish that shit's going to get weird. And you just kind of got to roll with it because there's not going to be any sort of empirical explanation because empiricism does not apply to this sort of phenomena. That's fair. I just think that, um, um, oh, what we were just talking about that, um, oh, um, from beyond, I think that does a better job of like, well, this is other, this is other parallel dimensions we don't understand. And so if, 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 you know, somebody has a little stalk growing out of their head and they seek brains, well, that's what's happening. But that's all that's again, for me, that's, that is a nitpick. This, I hope you guys understand that it's like, like Steve, you're talking about like the barrier for entry. Like I like this movie. I, I think it's good and I appreciate it in a lot of ways. It's just, it, it, it's, it keeps a film from being like good to great. That's sure. all. You know what I mean? That's all. That's, that's, yeah. that's, uh, that's all I got to say about it. So I, I, I know we're going along. I apologize. Um, but, um, so 
So I don't know if Steve, you have any other uh, thoughts? We can, we can, we can end on where this film kind of ended up in terms of his career leading into the next thing we're like, we'll talk about later. No, I, I think, you know, I keep going back to Ghostbusters uh, because El Goro made that comparison. And the more I think about it, there are choices that are made in Ghostbusters that I don't think I've ever given much consideration to other than like, for instance, even like if it had the equipment that we'd seen, had it been a little bit more fantastical and less real world, maybe that would have been like the bridge that could have gotten you to where we are. And I know maybe. that I shouldn't put your issues with the film on a level of like, well, maybe if it wasn't just, you know, a uh, Commodore 64 that they were working on, maybe <laughs> if it had been <laughs> something a little more techy. Oh, this Magnavox Odyssey is not doing Commodore so good. 20, thank yeah, you very yeah. much. <laughs> <laughs> this ColecoVision is not working so good, you know? Like <laughs> but I think that's part of the charm of the Ghostbusters movie. Uh, actually, all of them is, is that the equipment always looks very handmade yeah. and you know, literally that one piece of, of equipment is a strainer with wires on it. Um, but you buy it as the audience. I don't know if that is something that would have helped this movie or not for you. Um, but the more that I think about this movie now is like being in a Ghostbusters adjacent world. Like I want a movie now where this is happening. And at the very end, when she returns in 1999, the Ecto one pulls up. I, <laughs> I, 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 I know you, you. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, that'd be great. Just a, <laughs> just a kick trap. We're done. Thanks. You guys are good. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Prince of Darkness Afterlife is what the film would have been called. I'm kidding. No, no. So I think that this is not a bad mashup, though. I'm like, <laughs> shit, maybe I should write this down and change the title and put it out as something. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> Ghost Smashers, right? Just, just name it like whatever. Um, no, no, this is, it's a good movie. It's worthy of watching and it's worthy of seeing the evolution as Carpenter's a filmmaker. Cause he's going back to his low budget, like independent roots. He's making something that he really wants to make and he wants to make something grown up and all that shines through with this. And I appreciate it. It's just like, I don't, it doesn't always connect the, like, you know, we keep saying the pieces don't fit like, you know, like, like not together, like all the time. And like, Fine. There, there are, um, way more expensive movie shot this time that make less sense, you know? And so, uh, yeah, it's good. And I appreciate it. So I don't know if you guys have other thoughts, um, to wrap it up and then I can get to like the aftermath. No, no, I okay. think you wrapped it up. It's it, not everything may fit together as coherently as perhaps you would like yeah but in terms of a establishment of vibe i think he more than succeeded and i think this is a film that will grow on you with subsequent rewatches yeah that's fair so steve uh yeah i was just gonna make a last mention this is one of the carpenter soundtracks that i don't own so after rewatching it oh, I was yeah. like, you know what oh, i score's really great. be buying oh yeah the scores the scores really really good you're right that's a good call and also, yeah, and I, I oh, feel like it's more prevalent in this film than a lot of his films. Like it's it's scoring a lot of very long scenes and maybe not in a, you know, uh, Halloweenish type way, but like it's very background sort of ambiance here. Yeah, um, it, it covers up all the shoe squeaking as they run around. <laughs> like in the church because there's a lot of shoe squeaking <laughs> because the, it's like what is this a basketball game at a high school gym like there's a lot of shoe squeaking going on. 
So, Paul, what happened to Carpenter after this? Movie? What happened after this? Well, this film was released October 23rd, 1987. Budget of $3 million, And I just I did the math. I Googled it. Uh, that budget today would be around uh, $7.8 million. So, just to give everybody, like, for adjusted for inflation. Um, it actually ended up, like, making a profit of, what, $14 million at the time? Um, Mm -hmm. and cause even this was also released through universal, which was the first time he came back to them after the thing. And they actually did a decent marketing push. So it did okay, but not great. But the way everything kind of worked out, like the people that were invested, they made their money. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I, I know he also went out of pocket for 120 grand making this. I know it's going to become a thing later. We'll get into that because, um, the, the powers that be in a life, like the live, uh, film company or a production company, there's going to be some shit there. I don't know it all entirely. We'll get to that with they live, but the film was a financial success. This almost like when I mentioned the inflation budget, it feels like a bloom house budget. Um, so the reason I want to mention that. I uh, was trying to find Bloomhouse budgets recently, and there was um, an article that I found that I clicked on, and it was like paywalled, but I got the first part of it. <laughs> and they said that um, they were talking to Jason Bloom, and he mentioned that like the first Sinister film cost like $3 million to make at the time, but the budgets have now grown to between 3 to $5 million, and they said some are around 8 to $9 million. Um, the Black Phone, which we'll talk about that a little bit in a second, teasing things for the Algoro, the budget for that was $18 million. Um, so we look at the budget now it's in line with like a a bloom house picture, which feels about right. I think that's appropriate. So, uh, where it's like, it's almost this like micro budget where it's like, it's already kind of guaranteed to make its money, which, you know, especially with Carpenter being given like, you know, carte blanche to do what he wanted. I think that's cool. So I just want to at least say that, uh, he had a, he had a good, uh, good experience with this. Um, the critical response he got the shit beat out of him <laughs> again because people, people don't understand what they're watching. Like I'm not, I'm not saying they should come out and be like five stars, but they should have been like, oh yeah, this is this is this is like the steak dinner versus like all the fluff we're getting. You know, like sure. which is funny because I know what you're getting into for your next month with the shows. Oh, that you're nothing doing. but fluff <laughs> in terms of the main. <laughs> what? Episodes. I thought it was all steak. It's all steak. Yeah. <laughs> it's I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I absolutely adore the Friday the 13th franchise, but I will readily recognize it's nothing but Fluffernutter. Yeah, it's, it's steak found at Golden Corral. I get it. So I just thought that would be worthy of mentioning to kind of pull it into the modern age so people understand where we're coming from with this. It's like it's, it's, it's the same as like, you know, like almost like um, – all like the conjuring movies, which I'm sure that those budgets have gotten a little bit more, but it's like, yeah, this is the, these are the powers that be kind of giving a green light to a creator that already knows what they're doing. He brought in like comparable people that competent people. Cause the set dressing in this, like the, the chamber with the, the big, you know, Baja blast tube, and all the candles, like, how do you light that appropriately? Like, this isn't Kubrick doing Barry Lyndon. Like, you know, how do you, like, how do you do that? Right. It's like, it's so, it it's atmospheric. Right. And it's like, it is like this film, it, it feels like a Carpenter film, rightfully so. But it's like, it's like, it's, and it speaks to, um, it speaks to Assault and Precinct 13, where it's like, we might not have the money, but it's going to look like a million bucks. That's where this sure. film kind of lands with that. So that was my, that was my aftermath is that. It made its money. We're going to get into They Live in a couple of weeks, and we'll talk about more of his relationship with live pictures. That I know it's not going to end well, but this is a win in the way that it, it um, like more than tripled or quadrupled its budget. 
So, you know, I I can't help but keep going back to um, the discussion earlier about, you know, the Charles Band proposition, you know, and I I keep thinking about from our year of canon uh, where we talked about, and I actually don't think that we actually visited any of Toby Hooper's films while he was at canon, but, you know, I, I do wonder, you know, there's a parallel there and that Toby Hooper was hired where they're like, the expectation is, is we get a Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel out of it. And then they don't understand the sequel that he does. Um, I feel like Carpenter's in a very similar period where like, you know, uh, I think that they gave, if I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, cause you probably both know the history a little bit better than I do, but I feel like they gave, um, Toby Hooper with Cannon like three films where yes. he was like, well, I'm going to do, Life Force, I'm going to do Invaders from Mars, and then I'm going to do Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. You're right. And my understanding is is that like they didn't understand those movies at all, and then they get Texas Chainsaw 2, and they're like, this is not what we thought it was. <laughs> um, we talked about Carpenter's career. Like, if you're yeah. buying him at that time, you know, it's not that far off to be like, you know, Hooper makes Life Force, which is a very adult uh, science fiction film, you know, and Carpenter makes this, which is a, a very adult horror film. You know, it's not that surprising when you look at it through that, that spectrum of like, these are two guys who have much more to, to say and do with the genres that they are known for. But uh, it's something that I, I look back now and I'm like, you know, I wonder if people would have, you know, hindsight's always 20, obviously, but I, I wonder if people have revisited this and gone, Oh, you know what? There's something here that I missed, you know, or I have noticed that that there has been sort of a groundswell of reappraisal around Prince of Darkness insofar that it was never really a film from Carpenter that has been actively hated more like a film that has kind of been overlooked. But over the years, I have noticed a lot more people coming on board and appreciating what he was doing with this film than what was kind of the tenor when I was first coming into this movie. Because when I first watched Prince of Darkness, nobody was really talking about Mm -hmm. this film. It was basically just like, it's just a movie, you know? But now you will find more people kind of going to bat for it. That's fair. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, and, uh, you know, I I just... uh, I I can say that, you know, I don't I didn't see this back in the day. This is I I talked about before how my brother worked at the movie theater during these years and I got to see pretty much anything I wanted to for free. Somehow I did not see Prince of Darkness. I didn't actually see this movie until 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I'm probably part of somebody who didn't, you know, I I saw it with maybe more adult ideas uh, or ideas than I probably would have had uh, when I was. 87 i would have been 13 so in my head i'm sure if i saw prince of darkness at 13 it would have been like there's not enough blood or you know there were no boobs or you know any of the slasher (laughs) sort of tropes from that time i probably would have put it maybe as or less eloquently than i just did um but I, i just uh i don't know this is a movie that appeals to me very much as an adult. So I guess if you guys are listening to this and you're this far in, uh, I would say that if you're, this is a movie that you saw, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, whatever. And it just didn't stick with you. Maybe give it a try now. Yeah. Cause there's a lot to like here. 
Absolutely. I think that's fair. So, all right. I think it's going to uh, do it for our discussion about Prince of Darkness. Sounds like we're all going to give it a thumbs up. Absolutely. Versus uh, Roger Ebert. He did not <laughs> give it a thumbs up, um, you know, because, you know, people, it takes time, right? It's like, oh, Alice Cooper gets stabbed by a bike. Like, how do we feel about that? <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah. Well, no, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Steve. I, so let me ask you this. And I, I don't know that I've ever taken uh, El Goro's opinion on something like this. How much do actual cra- critics ratings affect what you'll check out versus, you know, what you will walk into? Um, you know, do you ever like take that into consideration? I'd be curious. Cause like my wife has very like strict, they're not strict rules, but like, she generally has set up like if something's come in at this point on Rotten Tomatoes, chances are she's probably going to enjoy it. And if it doesn't come in here, she won't enjoy it. And it swings both ways where she's like, oh, it's a 14 on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm probably going to like this movie. Like, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm curious. In, in, Do you guys in, consider that when you look at things? Not at all. Um, there are very few professional critics that I – have actively engaged with as far as sort of taste making. Um, I will say basically in terms of new films, I will see if it appeals and I seldom watch things like day of, um, but one thing that I will kind of keep an eye on is the general tenor of the social media circles that I have cultivated that I know essentially broadly the kind of people that are, I'm friends with, and how they're sort of responding to it. Now, if there is an overwhelming positive, that's the thing. I was like, okay, cool. There's a great buzz around this movie. Let's let's like hi- heighten that up. If there is an overwhelmingly negative, but there's still something about the film that appeals to me, I'll still put it on the back burner. I'll be like, okay, well, most of my friends kind of hate this movie, but I still think there's something appealing about it. I won't check it out right now but I will check it out event eventually. And there have been plenty of times where I've been in totally <laughs> in opposition to all of my different social media contacts where they've hated a film. And I'm like, Oh yeah, this is a hundred percent my shit. <laughs> but it, it, it is one of the, one of the benefits of a properly cultivated social media kind of circle that you can kind of sort of gauge the tenor of a film based upon what you know, of the person. And I suppose that's, it would have been similar to back in the day when if you were, if you were reading a broad cross section of critics, you would find somebody whose taste either reflected your taste, or if you found somebody whose tastes were diametrically opposed to your taste and you realize that every film this guy hates you loved, then that would be sort of the counter uh, recommendation for you. So broadly speaking, I don't pay much attention to professional critics. I will appreciate their insight into a film, but I will not necessarily allow that to define whether I see a movie or not. Um, I have a name about things I don't like, so I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) I know in the case of Roger Ebert, I, I find myself in opposition to quite a few of his opinions, particularly considering a lot of genre films, but to his credit, he has gone to bat for more genre films than perhaps his reputation would have you you believe that a lot of people will look at his view of like the Friday the 13th movies and assume that he was an enemy to this kind of entertainment. No, he went to bat for a lot 
of very classic films that we adore as part of this broader sort of community of horror fans. He just didn't wasn't in lockstep with all of the stuff that came out. No, that's fair. So I will say that there was back in the day, uh, during any cool news, there was the one, uh, um, uh, reviewer Capone. I, I know he still is out there. His, his name's like Steven Propsky. Yeah. Um, Capone was pretty close to my, my yeah, right? like, no, no. Like, I'm like, what's he thinking about a thing? Like he's like yep. his, his reviews are like, I'm aligned with him. And I'm not, I'm not saying like, if he likes something or doesn't like, it, I'm not going to watch it, but his sensibilities are much more in line with me. Right. And like, and so like, I, there's a couple other people I'll read, like, I'll see what's going on. And it's like, I, the, the, I think, I think the key here, Steve, with, with what we were asking, and I, I'm answering your question because you asked El Goro, not me. Um, cause I'm just butting in cause I'm an asshole is that if you're reading them and like, if you see that the, their touch points of what they're, what they're like zeroing in on and like, you could kind of get a read of like, well, you and I don't see things the same way, regardless of the film you're talking about, you know? So does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, I did actually address it to both of you. Oh, okay. So, uh, Sorry. I, I forgot. <laughs> I think I started off by saying that I had not heard El Goro's take quote unquote on, you know, the sites like Rotten Tomatoes or aggregates of, you know, critic scores, those types of things. But I well, explicitly said I hate aggregate sites. I, I don't think there's any value to be found in the aggregate that uh, trying to apply a mathematical certainty to something as subjective as movie discussion. There's no, there's no value to be found there. That's fair. And anybody who talks about uh, Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic and like talks about the, you know, the percentages of that, that is applying objective to measure to something that is inherently subjective. And I will rail against that to my last dying breath. Anybody who talks about objectivity and criticism is fooling themselves. There is no way to be objective in your criticism. The only thing that you can objectively say about a film is how long it is. <laughs> well, I, I, I'd like to believe, you know, that people are super objective these days. Like, for instance, there was a, uh, you know, a Munsters film that came out from Rob Zombie recently. I'm, I'm sure still interested everyone... in watching that Munsters film. So am I. I'm absolutely there. And I'm sure that everyone who's already reviewed it has been super objective I'm about sorry. it. I, and I well, what th- kills me is the amount of people that have watched that film that I know are not critics and don't have access to the actual official scre- uh, screeners that have clearly pirated the film. I see you, motherfuckers. <laughs> oh, <laughs> apologies. Oh, no, whatever. Anyway, got one. no, no. So I am. Um, I'm just saying that I looked at the Internet and they told me I shouldn't watch it. I'm kidding. I'm going to watch it because you know what? The, the monsters, uh, spoiler alert, the monsters was always goofy, stupid uh, entertainment. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly what that film looks well, like. Considering. Okay. So like real, just brief aside, goddamn, we're almost three hours in that this film, the, the monsters film came out as well as hocus pocus Two. the day we're recording this. So there's going to be a lot of, uh, commentary about things that people loved growing up watching. Right. There so, you go. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I'm going to watch Hocus Pocus this weekend. Sure. I, I will ask my wife how she liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I would watch it with my partner, Stephanie. Alas, she is le- uh, leaving the state this weekend. So she okay. will be watching it with my sister in Denver. Okay. Well, I mean, whatever. And we'll we'll so reconvene later to, to compare notes <laughs> compare on Hocus Pocus too. <laughs> so, 
I'll just say this: uh, the last, I, I, you know, I made the joke about the monsters uh, because I'm, I'm very much in the, the place that both of you are. Is is that, uh, you know, what's interesting to me is is that people suddenly care about something that they could not give two shits about before it was announced that Rob Zombie was doing yeah. it. Like people suddenly had these clutching their pearls sort of, you know, reactions. We're like, how could he? It's like. Really? Do you have that strong of feelings are, about are, the monsters? Are, are these the same people um, that are upset that um, uh, what's his name got cast as uh, Gomez in the Adams family? The Wednesday. Oh series. yeah, Luis Guzman. Yeah, the people that yeah. were complaining that they cast a Latino actor for a gentleman that was named Gomez. Gomez and ignoring that he the fact actually that looks like the have, character from the co- like the actual original comic strip. All right. And there have been two count them two Latino actors who have played the role prior to that, including. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Raul I'm, Julia. I'm, sorry. I'm, I'm getting heated, heated up here. We have Raul Julia and Oscar Isaacs, who's uh, Guatemalan. Yeah, yeah. So, Jesus <laughs> so I'm, here I'm just gonna, I'm going to pull the rug out here real quick, Steve. I just want you to know, in terms of like opinions and critics' opinions, uh, El Goro really appreciated Mad God way more than we did. So that's the dividing line. So. I- <laughs> everybody's different I, I, I know i know i know like i just feel like that we both keep the like this is like the like oh oh yeah we don't get it like, like <laughs> steve when you refer to it as you know a long form tool music video that wasn't the critic that wasn't a negative in my view <laughs> <laughs> oh i could like are, I, I, are you going to book it uh next year for your animation because i cannot oh, wait a thousand percent okay. i I'm, I'm definitely going to be discussing mad god i just got to find a good pairing with it yeah well i mean don't have us on because we're going to be negative nancy's about it so that's <laughs> <what I'm saying. laughs> i don't think that we were negative nancy's it was just my biggest problem with it was is was like there's no story here and it it just it feels like there should be a kick-ass, you know, uh, song underneath this film throughout the entire thing. So well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can reach out to Maynard James Keenan and get him to rescore the film. Because yeah. uh, <laughs> he loves his Ohio. Which kind of fits into uh, like my his... 31 Days of Halloween because I've been working ahead of that. And I've already discussed one film okay. that uh, was like uh, scored by a, uh, a French metal band that I really enjoy called Gojira. So I, I love when people do retroactive scores on films. Nice. So I'll also say that I'm kind of at a point now going back to the review thing real quick that, you know, I will sometimes uh, seek something out simply because I'm like, well, people clearly think this is some sort of giant dumpster fire. Let me look at it and see what it really is. Or, you know, it's more so that, like, I find myself finding the things that people derided. And I think that's probably why I brought up the monsters is that people were so against that movie before it was even like a, a, a frame of it had been shot, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think in those ways, like I, I tend to look now at like, what, what do people say sucks? I'm going to check that out. Is that you why know, you I, watch Samaritan with me? Is that why? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a film that I, I definitely listened to my social media and when pretty much everyone was saying, it was like, yeah, nah, no, Hey, no, no, no. You should watch it. It's okay. You should watch it. It's, if that movie would have come out between 1995 and 2000, it would have been good. Fair um, enough. But after that, it's it's so Stallone much. actually speaking coherent sentences. You should check it out. Anyway, so all right, I, we're we're spiraling out here. We're gonna we're all gonna end up in spirals. 
uh, which into the spirals into the spirals. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, thumbs up for, uh, Prince of Darkness. Like, uh, like I know, like, like I know El Goro, you have a, a bigger thumbs up, Steve. Are you like, do you have a, a big thumbs up? I don't know what that means. I don't know about size of thumbs. Um, I guess it's a medium thumbs up because it's not Halloween or the thing for me or even they live, which okay. we're going to talk next week, yeah. which well, is so a you, big thumbs up. Actually, yeah, human sized thumbs yeah. up. I have a giant red demonic hand thumbs That's up. That's fair. <laughs> I, I have, I have an, and, and, uh, El Goro, I have an orange casty thumbs up for it. That's there where I'm go. at. Um, it's just, yeah, it's we didn't, we didn't even talk about the AIDS allegory in this film. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's like that. Wow. And also like, like the people have like, they have, um, put that on the thing as well. I don't know. Like they feel, it feels slightly closer on Prince of Darkness. That's fair. So I'll give it so, that. So, all right. So that's going to do it for our discussion about Prince of Darkness. Um, I, you know, if you, if, if, no, if you've not watched the film yet, well, I mean, I don't know, like I, we've kind of ruined it, but kind of not. So go check it out. It's available on Peacock, uh, which is weird. Cause I have the premium Peacock, uh, subscription right now. It still made me suffer through two minutes of commercials, but then I could watch it anyway. So, what? Yeah. Madness. Like, I know it's stupid. Right. I'm like, well, this is stupid. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm just going to kill myself on a bicycle. Wow. Like, like with the two <laughs> minutes before the, the thing started. So it's available for streaming. If you have Peacock, uh, if you have the, even the premium version of Peacock, it's not that, it's not that expensive. And you know, there's other things there too. So check it out there. Um, I'm hoping you've watched the movie before the discussion. Otherwise, you know, the shit's going to get weird and that's fun. So, um, anyway, in the meantime, uh, you guys can check us out on invasion of the podcast. We have a Facebook page. We have a blog that is dusty AF. Uh, the last blog post was about grizzly Two, So your mileage may vary. I always keep going to, I've, I promised Steve, I would do a RoboCop three, uh, blog post. I, I owe him that I will get there eventually where he fights a samurai, I think, or a ninja. One of the two. I, I kind of love RoboCop three because it's so crazy. So, <laughs> so should yeah. I write about it or should we talk about it? Like you let me know. Maybe, we'll maybe we should talk about it at some point. Okay. We have covered, you know, you cover RoboCop with original, uh, flavor Joe. <laughs> original uh, flavor and then I came Joe. along in um, new Coke. Uh, so Steve, we covered RoboCop. Steve, you understand too. that you've done like two thirds more episodes with me. I will <laughs> always be the new guy on the show. Um, <laughs> You need to do the uh, Frank Miller RoboCop uh, comic, comic book uh, version. Oh. Uh, okay. I, I've never read more than like an issue or two of that, so I would be curious to dive into that. Uh, I would I would also uh, tie, t- throw that to the Al Gore because we don't talk about comics a whole lot. If you want to get to the Frank Miller RoboCop, we could cover that at some point. That'd be fun. I was trying to remember who did the art on that. Was that Frank Miller or did they need to bring in somebody else? He did else covers, um, and the, the gentleman whose name is escaping me right now. Yeah. Uh, Miller just does covers. Um, uh, I, uh, Juan Jose rip. Yes. Okay. <laughs> He's an avatar press guy. I think oh, um, that, that makes sense because I, I I'm visualizing the artwork from that, from that comic. And that feels very avatar press. <laughs> I'll just say this. If we're going to talk Frank Miller, RoboCop, I would much rather first get to, RoboCop versus Terminator with Walt Simonson. Hell yeah. There okay, you go. whatever. That like, story kicks major ass. Okay, well, we can do that. We'll do it. Beautiful. We'll do it. We'll do it. Um, let's let's um, let's um look for like the first part of the year because I, I know we're all okay. going to be busy for stuff. That'd be fun. Talk about some comics and some RoboCops fighting some Terminators. That'd be fun. So, so yeah, check us out on our social media. And Steve, how can people find you? 
You can find me on Facebook and Instagram under the Slasher. I am still on Twitter, although I don't think I've posted in a very long time. Uh, under the Saturday Slasher, we also have a website, the Slasher.com. Yeah, all right. So the, go check that out. Go buy comics. Go buy buttons and pins and stickers and all that good stuff. And wherever you find your podcast, rate and review us. It'd be greatly appreciated. And the El Goro, um, how can people find you uh, more so than us? All right. Well, you can find me on my main podcast, which is Talk Without Rhythm. You can find us on the main website, TWORpodcast.blogspot.com, or you just do a search for Talk Without Rhythm. You will find us. Um, currently, at the time that this will be released, we'll be right on the edge of starting off the uh, October season, which is always a big to do over on top of that rhythm, because that's when I do my 31 days of Halloween, where every day in the month of October, I watch a horror film that I have never seen before. And I record a podcast discussion about it. 31 days, 31 horror films, 31, uh, 31 podcasts, 31 days of Halloween. We're going to be kicking things off with a 1920s avant-garde Japanese film called A Page of Madness, which is a crazy, crazy film. Uh, as kind of a spoiler, I do kind of work ahead on some of these things, so I've already banked some episodes of these just because the spooky season tends to get a little bit crazy. I would hope so. so. I, yeah, I, 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 I tried to work <laughs> ahead. So I've already watched A Page of Madness. I've already uh, recorded the episode it is waiting to be unleashed upon the world. There's a lot of fun stuff to be found in there. And in addition to that, of the daily podcast in October, I will be doing the regular weekly episodes of Talk Without Rhythm. And because this is the 13th uh, Halloween season that we've done over on Talk Without Rhythm, I felt it only right to finally uh, knock off all of the Friday the 13th films that I have not previously discussed on the show. To this point, the only uh, Friday the 13th films that I've discussed have been Friday the 13th Part 4, the final chapter, uh, (laughs) 5 and 6 to complete the Tommy Jarvis trilogy, and uh, Freddy vs. Jason. So all of the other main weekly podcasts of Talk Without Rhythm are going to be all the other Friday the 13th installments that I haven't previously discussed, including the, the original all the way up through Jason X, as well as the remake and the uh, rather well-received fan films that have come out, including uh, Never Hike Alone and Never Hike Alone in the Snow. And uh, wouldn't you know it, as the tentative plans happen, there may be a uh, contributor from Invasion of the Podcast showing up on one of those episodes. Stay yeah, tuned, I've also folks. heard some rumors. I've also heard some rumors that there might be uh, another person showing up. Uh, Indeed, from, yes. uh, and <laughs> as uh, part of the the broader uh, Northeast Ohio Podcasting Alliance. Yeah, and also another person in the the um, the Boston area that might show up That's as well. True. That, that, That's true. That, I cannot wait. I cannot wait to hear your your talks about all that. It's going to be so much fun. I'm going to ask you real quick. Um, sure. Of your 31 days of Halloween, I know you've already covered one. I, I'm looking at what you have here. I already have your Facebook image up, like page up with all this. I know you already like. I'm sure you're looking forward to all this. But are there a couple of titles that you're like, I slotted. I cannot wait to get to this. Like, what are you like? What are you most excited about? Well, in terms in terms of some of the stuff that is out there that I'm super excited to get into, uh, there are a couple of full horror films that uh, 
earlier this year, uh, Severn Films released a gigantic folk horror box set that mm-hmm. included a extensive four-hour documentary about various folk horror films. And so many of those films covered in that documentary were part of that box set, but there were quite a few that were not part of that. So I'm sort of filling in the gaps with this 31 Days, including a 1950s Finnish folk horror film called The White Reindeer, which I'm super excited to get into. Uh, in addition to that, there uh, the intersection between black exploitation and horror that I'm super excited to get into, a 1976 film called JD's Revenge. But honestly, uh, <laughs> From the the pure joy that this will be, there is a mini uh, theme that is going to pop up in the 31 days, wherein I discovered that there was a curious amount of animal attacks films released in 1977. I was hoping that, I was hoping you would talk about this. Please, please oh, get into it. Oh, a thousand percent. Yes. And to give you the background, the thing that kind of encouraged me to do these is that in the past year, I got super into a uh, listening to some like later era Warren Zevon albums. <laughs> Basically, when he was like dying and he was like being oh, no. super, super super about death, and he had a song called "Life Will Kill Ya." And in that song, he he name checks both uh, Kingdom of the Spiders. And Empire of the Ants, both of which were released in 1977, and both of which are films I have not seen. And then when I was digging deeper, I realized, huh, in 1977, not only was there Kingdom of the Spiders, not only was there Empire of the Ants, but there was also Day of the Animals and Tentacles. So there's going to be a mini thread of animal attack films from 1977, which I'm super excited to check out. Oh, I'm excited. I, I, I just like that has been my Earth Day theme the last couple of years is watching animal right? attack films, right? So that's a lot of fun. Day of the Animals. Um, I cannot wait to hear you talk about it. I prefer Grizzly to Day of the Animals. You'll, you'll get there when you get but there. But I've seen Grizzly, so yes. I have to expand my horizons. No, but it's a Girdler film, and there's a lot of good there. I mean, you have Leslie Nielsen in it. I'm not going to say anything else. Um, now, and was then, the Kingdom of the Spiders that had Shatner in yes, it? Yes. And I, yes. I, I will say that I'm, I know you're going to watch it straight-faced, but uh, Rift Tracks does a version of it that is so much fun. But nice. I've seen I've seen the film without that, too. And also, so many tarantulas die in that film. So, <laughs> oh, spoiler, spoiler. And I see you're also getting into a Death Ship from 1980. My God, yeah, the, the film God. with the greatest poster that I've never Oof. been able to uh, see up to this point. Oh, and you get um. Oh, uh, speaking of uh, Leslie Nielsen, the Naked Gun, you have um. Oh, what's his name? The his partner in that as well. Like you get um George Kennedy. That's George Kennedy. OJ yeah. Simpson. OJ Simpson's in Death Ship. <laughs> um, he just runs around, and you don't know what you don't know what he did, but you think he did something. No, no. George Kennedy's in Death Ship. That movie, it's it's rough and tumble. I cannot wait to hear your thoughts about it. So I like that. There's like three films out of your 31 that I'm like, ooh, ooh, ooh I've seen. You know, like you're. Like, that's what I'm saying. You're always out there doing things, and I cannot wait to get to that. Your 31 Days of Halloween is like it's like. I know you do such a good job of not recording three hour episodes like we're doing right now of things, but it's like, it's like 20, 30 minutes. It's like, it's, it's like, um, I get so much yard work done, uh, with your 31 days of Halloween, just, you know, letting you know, it's, 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 it's <laughs> yeah, that, let, it, let, let them pile up and then just marathon through them. Right. <laughs> that, well, I mean, I get a couple days, you know, like it's what happens, you know, but, I, there you go. Yeah. I'll just say my favorite episode last year was, uh, um, 
you know, uh, Terror in the Isles, in which you were completely uh, on yes. board with my idea that uh, it is not a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thousand percent not a documentary. It's a glorified clip show. <laughs> but uh, uh, I just realized that none of us had brought this up. It was part of our news last week. We talked about, and it's a John Carpenter episode, so I oh, feel yes. remiss we, we didn't discuss this, this before we sign off. Yeah, John Carpenter, the, the, the big announcement last year, or last year, last week from both uh, Shout Factory slash Scream Factory is, is that uh, uh, Carpenter is going to be doing a Godzilla marathon or monster marathon, if you will. Um, he's going to be doing it uh, from November 3rd through 6th. It's going to be on uh, the Shout Factory TV. You've got uh, November 3rd at 6 p.m. Uh, and that says, uh, uh, I guess it's 8 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. So, uh, it doesn't list East Eastern, so I'm assuming that's 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, but that feels like it's ahead, so I'm not it'd sure. It'd be point, 11 but, uh, if it's if it's Pacific time at 8 p.m. It'd be 11 p.m. Eastern time. So yeah, yeah that's why I was like, that doesn't make any sense because they have 6 6 p.m. here. Maybe they're yeah. both. Well, Pacific regardless, time. I will not be able to watch it live because you said it was October 15th. 12 hours. Uh, no, November yeah. November 3rd. Oh, November 3rd. Okay. okay. Godzilla, the uncut Japanese original Gojira. Uh, November 4th uh, is going to be Rodan. Okay. November 5th is going to be, uh, oh, I'm going to say this wrong and people are going to get mad at me. Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. That was that was pretty good. It was close. It's <laughs> um, Ghidorah. And, uh, yeah. November 6th will be uh, the War of the Gargantuas. Nice. Which is much more in line with, uh, you know, reality. And uh, I know I know there were some people that were thinking, oh, Carpenter's going to direct a Godzilla film. No, no. he's not. No, Come we, on. No, he's going to be in a theater <laughs> eating chicken and smoking cigarettes and just talking about films. Exactly. He he's going to he's going to sit on a set and watch Godzilla films and comment about him. And that is more in line with where Carpenter is in his career <laughs> right now. And you know what? More yes. power to it. Rightfully so. Please. What I love about yeah. this, though, is, is it's not crowding into an already like busy October like it, it kind of feels like Halloween's gonna go past and it does for a lot of us anyways on you know October 31st you know we're in November for the first episode I'm kind of like I'm loving that choice of not making me choose from other things that I might be trying to take in Seriously. in October so I applaud them for being like let's let's call our shot beginning of November and, and keep it rolling yeah so, all right. Um, this went an hour longer than I was expecting. I apologize. <laughs> again, We're fine. My gosh. Um, yeah. To everybody, it's like, oh no, again they did it again with another person. Like anyway. So the same uh, guy. The same guy, right? So Steve, let's announce what we're doing next week because uh, we're going to piggyback. <laughs> Off of uh, off of Algoro's uh, month of going into the you know Halloween films, you have suggested uh, Friday the first Friday the thirteenth Friday the thirteenth part four the final chapter, um, the fourth film of a twenty seven film series. <laughs> Not quite that many people, but uh, I think there's thirteen official films. I can be corrected uh, by better fans if I'm yeah. wrong, but. Uh, um, I, I'll just say this, uh, in regards to our next episode it is my favorite Friday the 13th. Um, it is the first horror movie that I saw in the theater and I've told this story before, but I'm sure I'll tell it again next week in regards to how I got to see that. Um, basically it was guilt tripping my mom into making me see something that she was <laughs> immediately regretted making me, uh, taking me to, um, 
but uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about Friday the 1984's uh, Friday the 13th Part 4, the final chapter. Yes, you guys, it's a four-part series. It ends after Part 4. There are never, ever any other uh, Friday the 13th after that, unless you skip ahead to 1985, the year after. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it is with Part 4. My favorite. Yeah. It is with Part uh, 4 that it goes to Jason X. That's immediately what happens. I'm kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's what we're going to be talking about next week. Um, yeah, I think we're done here. I have to quote somebody I know. So um, everybody have a good week uh, and go into October. It's fall now, officially. Screw all people that thought fall happened in the beginning of July. But we're now officially in spooky season. So, Agora, uh, uh, we'll talk to you like later because you have like 6,000 things to do. Thank you for coming on two weeks in a row. We appreciate that. Thank you for um, having me on. My God. It's an absolute yeah. blast. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it's going to do it for us this week. Everybody have a good week. Uh, go into um, spooky uh, timber and we'll, we'll see you like next week with uh, Halloween, Halloween, Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> Friday 13th part four. Um, yeah. Steve, any, anything on the way out? I just like to thank any of El Gora's listeners who are boosting our algorithm right now or getting our numbers up. So thank you.
truth He feels what's gonna be He spits on life He spits on God He spits on death for you and me Prince of darkness Prince of darkness